This is Commission President Ryan Calkins reconvening the regular meeting of November 8th, 2022. The time is 12.08 p.m. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle headquarters, Commission Chambers, and virtually through Microsoft Teams. Clerk Hart, can you please call the roll? Yes, thank you, Mr. Commission President. Before we do that, will you please make the correction regarding executive session attendance? Uh, that's right. So we were anticipating, um, or we had, we had mentioned that uh, Commissioner Muhammad would be in attendance. She was not for executive session. Thank you very much. So for the roll today, we'll begin with Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Welcome back, sir. Commissioner Hasegawa. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Muhammad. Present. Thank you. And Commissioner Calkins. Present. Thank you. Due to the continued virtual component of participation for our meetings, we have staff, external presenters, and members of the public who may be participating on their personal devices or from their telephones today. We've made arrangements to accommodate the virtual format. Later, we'll take public comment on items related to the conduct of the port from people who are participating by teams, as well as from those in person who have signed up to speak. For anyone participating on Microsoft Teams, please mute your speakers when not actively speaking or presenting. Please keep your cameras off unless you are a member of the commission or executive director participating virtually, or are a member of staff in a presentation or actively addressing the commission. Members of the public addressing the commission may turn on their cameras when their name is called to speak. For anyone at the dais here today, please turn off the speakers on any computers and silence your devices. When you are recognized to speak, you will press the button for your microphone to be audible, and will press it again to silence it when not actively speaking. All the items noted here will ensure a smoother meeting. All votes today will be taken by the roll call method, since there is a virtual component to the meeting. So it is clear for anyone participating virtually how votes are cast. Commissioners will say aye or nay when their name is called. To be equitable, I ask that all commissioners wait to be recognized before speaking. We are meeting on the ancestral lands and waters of the Coast Salish people, with whom we share a commitment to steward these natural resources for future generations. This meeting is being digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website and may be rebroadcast by King County Television. Please stand and join us for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. First item in the business today is approval of the agenda. Are there any items to be pulled from the consent agenda or motions to rearrange the orders of the day? Okay. Commissioners, the question is now on approval of the agenda. Is there a motion to approve the agenda? Second. The motion has been made and seconded. Is there any objection to approval of the agenda as presented? Hearing none, the agenda is approved as presented. Next on our agenda is the executive director's report. Uh, today we have Dan Thomas, chief financial officer and acting director, giving the report for executive director metric today. Dan, you have the floor. Thank you, commissioners. Uh, yes, the executive director metric is in Sharm el Sheikh. Egypt representing the port at the 27th conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change known as COP27. He is currently there with Commissioner Cho and will be joined by Commissioner Muhammad and Senior Director of Environment, Sustainability and Engineering Sandy Kilroy later this week. 
The focus of this year's conference is implementation of some of the major climate change and carbon reduction goals that have been set at previous COP events. Particularly relevant to us, there was a major focus on maritime decarbonization, including much discussion of green corridors. In fact, yesterday, Commissioner Cho was able to be part of a major announcement with many world leaders and CEOs regarding a new global green shipping challenge. As part of that event, Commissioner Cho spoke to a new federally funded feasibility study for a green shipping corridor between the Northwest Seaport Alliance and Busan, South Korea. This announcement is a great example of why our presence at COP27 is not only a chance to promote our leading efforts on sustainability, but also to connect with potential partners, funders, and key policymakers who can support our work. We look forward to hearing more about port-specific outcomes once commissioners and staff return. Following that conference, Steve will head to Japan with Commissioners Cho, Fellman, and Hasegawa on the Seattle Chamber's International Study Mission with many other leaders from across the state. One of the trip highlights will be the visit to Kobe to celebrate the 65th anniversary of the Seattle-Kobe sister city relationship and the 55th anniversary of the Port of, Se of Seattle-Kobe sister port relationship. We will have the opportunity to learn more about Kobe's leading work on hydrogen and alternative fuels, which connects directly back to our green corridor work and overall maritime decarbonization efforts. We welcome both of these opportunities to spread the good word about all the good work that is going on at the port and appreciate the exchange of ideas and innovations to make our region a better place. I would also like to acknowledge that November is Native American Heritage Month. This is a time to celebrate rich and diverse cultures, traditions, and histories and to acknowledge the important contributions of Native people. It is also a time to raise awareness about the unique challenges Native people have faced both historically and in the present, and the ways in which tribal citizens have worked to conquer these challenges. As part of our commitment to equity and to being a truly anti-racist organization, we know that we need to move beyond simple land acknowledgments and toward meaningful action. One small way we are doing that this month is by hosting three lunch and learns focused on the legal, political, and relational, relational landscape of local tribes. The final event in this series will be on November 14th, and I want to provide my deepest thanks to External Relations and the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion for facilitating these important conversations. In addition, the Port's Native American Committee, otherwise known as NAC, is spotlighting a Native American leader each week on Compass. I'm grateful for these opportunities to learn and would like to wish everyone a happy Native American Heritage Month. Moving to today's commission meeting, I would like to highlight a few items. On our consent agenda, we have several actions that highlight our commitment to resiliency, sustainability, and renewal and replacement. Item 8D is an authorization that will help us be better prepared for snow events at SEA. Earlier this year, you approved procurement of new snowplows, and that equipment is due to arrive in several weeks. This action helps ensure we have adequate de-icing fluid for our runways and roadways. Item 8H is a new collective bargaining agreement with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Local 117, representing 75 police officers who are assigned to the Port of Seattle Police Department. The new agreement includes provisions for contracted law enforcement officers, increases in wages and health insurance premiums, 
modifications to squad assignments, terms related to the port's vaccine mandate policy, and language acknowledging a commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion. Items 8J and 8K will authorize purchase of an industrial catch basin cleaning truck and a street sweeper for marine maintenance and our stormwater utility. Not only do these vehicles help ensure efficient and reliable operations, but they are also environmentally friendly. Like all marine maintenance vehicles, they will run on renewable diesel in line with the port's sustainable fleet plan. Item 8L is an action to replace the Pier 66 fender system with a more environmentally friendly alternative. Finally, I want to note the consent votes on the Part 150 Noise and Land Use Compatibility Study and the 2023 State Legislative Agenda. These are very important items and were briefed at your last Commission meeting. Moving to the action agenda, we have two very important financial discussions, which is the key reason why I'm here in the chair for Steve today. We'll begin with introduction of the port's 2023 budget, including the proposed 2% increase in the port's property tax levy. I'll have more to say about this as we discuss that item. We'll also hear first reading of the 2023 salary and benefits resolution, which includes important updates in our efforts on pay equity, among other key investments. Now lastly, as all of you know well, today is election day. There are several important elections and ballot measures up for consideration, and I would like to remind everyone listening that they have until 8 p.m. today to mail in their ballots or find one of the in-person polling places around the state. You can even still register to vote in person at a county election office. Thank you to everyone for exercising this important civic duty. Thank you, and that's my report. Thank you, Dan. Um, at this time, we're going to turn to Erica Chung, who is going to provide committee reports. She's a commission strategic advisor. Thank you, Erica. Go ahead. Uh, good afternoon, Commissioner uh, President Calkins and commissioners. I have a one committee report for you today. On October 28th, Commissioners Cho and Mohammed convened the Equity and Workforce Development Committee. Commissioners heard an update on the draft language of the Equity Policy Directive and, and gave committee approval of the framework of the draft directive. Staff are working to refine language in the draft and per Commissioner Mohammed's input, we'll explore language around spending a certain percentage of this budget on equity-related investments. Staff will then offer briefing on the equity policy director directive draft to commissioners and set up listening sessions with port staff and external experts on equity before incorporating any feedback and bringing the directive to commission for potential approval in 2023. This concludes my report. Thank you. Great. Any questions or comments from commissioners on committee reports? All right. We are now at the public comment section of our agenda. The Port Commission welcomes public comment as an important part of the public process. Comments are received and considered by the Commission in its deliberations. Before we take public comment, I want to review our rules for in-person and virtual public comment. Each commenter will have two minutes to speak and should stay within the allotted time. A timer will appear on the screen and a buzzer will sound at the end of the two-minute period for each speaker. You must limit remarks to topics related to the conduct of Port business. These rules apply to introductory and concluding remarks. All remarks should be addressed to the Commission as a body, not to individual Commissioners. Disruptions of Commission public meetings are prohibited. Disruptions include, but are not limited to the following. Refusal of a speaker to limit remarks to topics related to the conduct of port business. 
threats and abusive or harassing behavior, including but not limited to obscene language and gestures, refusal of a speaker to comply with the allotted time set for the individual speaker's public comment, leaving the podium or testimony table to physically approach commissioners or staff during one's public comment, any behavior that disrupts, disturbs, or otherwise impedes the meeting. Written materials provided to the clerk will be included in today's meeting record. The clerk has a list of those prepared to speak. We are taking comments from anyone who has signed up to speak virtually, as well as from anyone who has joined us in the chambers. When the clerk calls your name, if you are joining virtually, please unmute yourself. Then please repeat your name for the record and state your topic related to the conduct of port business. If you're on the Teams meeting and are also streaming the meeting on the website, please mute the website stream to avoid feedback. If you are speaking from the room, please come to the testimony table, repeat your name, and state your topic related to the conduct of port business. For all speakers, if any topic is not related to the conduct of port business, the speaker will be asked to speak directly to items related to the conduct of the port, or otherwise leave the microphone. As a reminder, comment time is two minutes per person. Clerk Hart, can you please call our first speaker? Yes, we'll begin with the room. Our first speaker is Alex Zimmerman. Alex, if you could restate your name for the record and your topic related to the conduct of port business, please. Absolutely. I'm doing this for all my life. Thank you. Yeah, I'm too much spent time in school, so be stupid. <laughs> uh, where is time at? It'll pop up as soon as you state your name and the topic. Ah, okay, Actually, no problem. Let me be Absolutely. a little bit. Yeah, my name is Alex Zimmerman. I am a president of Stand Up America. And can you state the topic that you're going to be speaking to? Oh, yeah. I speak about 8080, about, about adoption of state legislative agenda. Okay. Yeah. Zeke Heil, my lovely commissioner. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're not so good but exactly what is I come today and want to speak about this because I don't think so for many years you uh, interpret state legislative agenda <laughs> in civilized way yeah for example you don't know what is mean open public meeting act I don't think so you somebody from you ever talk about this so I make little bit memorandum for you. You know what this means? This memorandum will explain to you direction what is I see for many years. Yeah, what is I see before. In Seattle, King Country, I lived 35 years, enough for understand what's going on. So this uh, memorandum explained to you, so your interpretation comes something what is I are uh, uh, talking, is a something, something fascism, you know what is mean, epicenter of fascism in America, Seattle, and King Country. So, my memorandum explained to, yeah, so you don't have a freedom of speech, no Seattle Council, no King Country Council, no Sound Transit Council, no Seattle School Board, no Seattle Port Commissioner, no PCRC meeting, no Seattle City Club. I call this them, them, Nazi Gestapo democracy fascism. Mr. Commission President, exactly to topic 80. 
What is this exactly? What is I explained to you? Because Mr. Zimmerman, if you can remain on the topic that you said you would speak about, it's exactly what is I am talking. You interpretate decision what is make in a state legislative agenda totally in different direction. And I see this for many years. Stand up, America. We need something doing about this. Thank you very much. I give this to you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Zimmerman. Yeah, I, I, I give this to you. Clerk Hart, please call the next speaker. Thank you, Alex. Yes, our next speaker is joining us from Teams. It is Jeannie Fulcher. Jeannie, if you can restate your full name for the record and your topic related to the conduct of port business, please. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Jeannie Fulcher. I'm the Labor Equity Analyst on the City of Seattle's Priority Hire Team, and I'm here to support the Ports Investments and Worker Outreach, Training, Retention, and Wraparound Services in Construction Trades and Green Jobs. Thank you. The City of Seattle works closely with the Port to meet public construction demand by diversifying, expanding, and retaining the workforce. These efforts need intention and commitment through workforce investments. Otherwise, we risk leaving our underserved communities behind. Workers on our public projects have quality jobs with living wages, benefits, career advancement, and workplace safety. As public owners, it's our responsibility to create access and training for BIPOC and women workers who have been underrepresented in the industry. We are anticipating a worker shortage in the coming years. The trades we need to complete our public projects are expecting a regional annual average gap of nearly 5,000 workers. And currently, construction has more white and male workers than other sectors. Workforce investments will help fill those gaps and diversify the workforce. These efforts can also address any bullying, hazing, and harassment that BIPOC workers, women, and apprentices may experience while we work together to shift the culture in the industry. Our workforce investments make a very real difference in people's lives. One example is John, who went through Anu's pre-apprenticeship training program after spending time in a correctional facility. Anu, which is jointly funded through the city, port, and sound transit, gave John the opportunity to train, and Priority Hire provided the opportunity to work. John has since completed his apprenticeship program and has worked on many large public projects across the region. He's proud of his accomplishments and loves his job and his new life. This is our time to make a difference for underserved communities and ensure that we're able to build our public projects with a trained and ready workforce. The port's investments in worker outreach, training, retention, and wraparound services will help us get there. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Fulcher. Clerk Hart, next speaker. Yes, our next speaker is Marianne Talbot. Marianne, if you could please repeat your full name for the record and your topic related to the conduct of port business, please. Hi, yes, good afternoon. My name is Mariana Talbot. I am the Pre-Apprenticeship Outreach and Retention Coordinator for the Northwest Carpenters Institute, here to talk about the Pre-Apprenticeship Program that we just graduated that was funded by the Port of Seattle. Thank you, Marianne. Yeah, so I just wanted to have the opportunity to first and foremost thank the Port of Seattle for the funding that we had recently been received. We recently graduated our first out of three cohorts for the Carpenters Apprenticeship 
specifically the pre-apprenticeship program. This last cohort, we were able to train and graduate 12 students, all of whom either come from our BIPOC community and or reside in those economically distressed zip codes. We were also able to train three women that are now getting in the process of getting into the Carpenters Union into the apprenticeship program. Because of this funding, we have been able to give career opportunities, making livable wages with benefits to a community that is considered underrepresented. We are able to get them the skills training. We're able to help them remove barriers such as you know, childcare, licensing, you know, helping them with their tools. We're able to get them on these public projects and really help to change kind of the culture that's happening out there in the industry. So this funding has really helped us in supporting getting people that don't always have the accessibility and access to get into these livable careers. And so with that funding, you know, it has helped us to be able to bring in 123 people of color, which makes up 71% of our graduates. And we've also been able to bring 37 women, which is 21% of our graduates placed into the apprenticeship program because of funding like the Port of Seattle, where we're able to get out there into the community and to help bridge these career pathways into these, again, livable wages into these careers. So I did send out a report to the commissioners to review, just giving a highlight of our statistics, as well as some testimonials from the most recent graduates and hoping that we can see continued funding for pre-apprenticeship to help our communities. Thank you very much, Ms. Talbot. Clerk Hart, next speaker. Yes, thank you. Our next speaker is David Goebel. David, if you could please go ahead and repeat your full name for the record and state your uh, topic related to the conduct of port business, please. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm David Goebel. I'm the president of the 501c3 uh, Vachelon Fair Skies formed in the wake of NextGen implementation at SeaTac several years ago. Um, I'm here today to speak on the upcoming Part 150 study. Thank you, David. Okay, so I kind of an interest. So Part 150, it's purely an administrative artifact. It's part of the regulatory code. Uh, Mr. Goble, we've lost your sound. You appear to be muted. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. So, yeah, um, let's, let's, uh, why don't we just start over for And David. we're restarting your time, right. David. Go ahead, David. Okay, did, did you hear my name? Yes. We did, yes. Go ahead with the content. Okay. Um, so uh, Part 150, it's a purely administrative artifact. Um, it's part of the regulatory code. So it doesn't have the same teeth um, as an EA, which is under NEPA, a, a federal legislation. Um, but still, it's a very important uh, study that's done every several years at the airport to look at the uh, noise impacts around the surrounding communities. And I kind of have an interesting history with it because when NextGen first became substantially implemented around 2015, over Vashon Island, and I was like, you know, what's going on? Why are all these flights not over me that never were before? Um, that's when I discovered that the last Part 150 was done the previous year in 2014. So it was kind of unfortunate that this really kind of major study of noise was done right before what David Sumi, who's the Northwest Mountain Regional Director of the FAA, described as the largest change in flight procedures since the introduction of civilian radar which was NextGen, it's focusing on tracks over Fashion Island. Um, and yet this very important study was done the year before this major change. So this is an important milestone coming up, uh, the Part 150, and I, I assume and expect it's going to really focus on things that have changed since the last one. And again, David Sumi, the regional administrator of the FAA, described NextGen um, as implemented over Fashion Island, especially with the precise RMP procedures um, as the most significant change. Uh, so 
I'm really looking forward to the commission and the, the port in general um, becoming very involved in the Part 150 and making sure that it is uh, comprehensive and authoritative and looks at um, all the noise impacts, especially the ones that have happened since the previous Part 150 study. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Goble. Clerk Hart, next speaker. Yes, our last speaker signed up today is Roxanne Thayer. Roxanne, if you can please repeat your full name for the record and your topic related to the conduct of port business, please. Yes, uh, my name is Roxanne Thayer, and I'd like to address the uh, Part 150 study in relationship to Vashon Moray Island. Thank you, Roxanne. Okay, I have uh, lived on Vashon Island in the same house for 42 years and until next-gen flight changes occurred, the flights over Vashon and Maury Island and in particular uh, our home were equitably distributed across the sound. Um, now, uh, particularly in South Flow, they run every two minutes from about 4 a.m. until after 11 p.m and then less frequently through the night with um, extremely loud ones starting quite often around 3.45, 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, and let me reiterate, uh, what we're requesting is not a removal of planes, but an equitable distribution across the sound. Um, Next-gen uh, flights are disruptive uh, of uh, being able to do business from home, which I do, and um, make sleeping and work anything else you'd like to do quite quite difficult um, it's a very different different experience living in the same house I've lived in for 43 years um, so I would like to ask uh, that Vashon and Maury Island be included in the part 150 study also I would like to address the fact that it appears that Vashon has been systematically um, isolated from uh, participation in several ways. We were told at a start meeting that complaints are not counted. We have the largest number of complaints, um, households and number of complaints as well. Um, our sound recorder, which was here for a short while, we requested two, we got one. That one's been removed and is now sitting in a closet somewhere. And their meetings have just, uh, they just moved to have their meetings basically shut people out of uh, visual and hearing. So that's my address. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ms. Thayer. That concludes our signups for today. Is there anyone else present on the Teams call or present here in the room who didn't sign up but who still wishes to address the commission? Okay, at this time I'll ask the clerk to please give a synopsis of any written comments that we've received. Thank you, Mr. Commission President, members of the commission. Um, we have received three written comments for today's meeting. The first comes from Jordan Van Vost, who speaks regarding the world's population growth and climate crisis, urges the port to read the critique of the Green Corridor, which Seattle Cruise Control has shared, and asks the port to stop promoting non-essential air and cruise tourism. And then the other two written comments that we received were from Roxanne Thayer and Marianne Tabbitt supporting their spoken comments here today. And all of these written comments have been previously distributed to you and are part of the meeting record. That concludes the written comments today. 
Thank you, Clerk Hart. Uh, before we move on to the consent agenda, I just want to make a quick comment. Uh, we've um, heard the news that there has been a shooting at Ingram High School here in Seattle. And I think uh, it's important to acknowledge that um, there are staff members who've been affected and also um, it is a reminder that unfortunately something is broken in our system regarding uh, the possession of uh, weapons that, that can cause this kind of danger, even in one of the most sacred spaces in our democracy, which is our, our education system for our children. And so today we at the port are keeping the victims and their families in our thoughts and prayers, and we hope for the best outcome for this and that it uh, is um, that it does not spread any further in uh, in this area. So um, with that acknowledgement, I want to move on to the consent agenda. And Clerk Hart, I'm going to need your help here because we do actually, in fact, want to remove a, an item. I've had a commissioner ask that we remove item 8M. So I know we've already um, passed the agenda, but can you tell me, can we just ask for a motion to remove a consent agenda item at this time? Okay, they can just ask. Okay. All right, so I'll ask again for any items from the consent agenda to be removed. Yes, um, I would like to remove item 8M. All right. Any objections to that? No. Oh, great. Okay. I guess it doesn't, it just is removed. Um, so items on the consent agenda are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion. Items removed from the consent agenda will be considered separately immediately after adoption of the remaining consent agenda items. At this time, the chair will entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda items covering items A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, N, as in Nancy, and O. So moved. Second. All right, the motion was made and seconded. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Beginning with Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you, four ayes, zero nays for this item. All right, and now we'll move immediately to- And that motion passes. At, yes, with uh, four ayes and zero nays, the motion passes. Um, at, at this time, so that item 8M, will now move to the top of the new business agenda. And so I'm gonna ask, uh, Acting Executive Director Dan Thomas to introduce the item. I'll go ahead and read it into the record first. Thank you, Clerk Hart. You're welcome. And then I believe Stan is here and available for any, to answer any questions. <laughs> okay, so Clerk Hart will read it into the record. Dan, you'll introduce it. And then I'm just going to have us, instead of doing a presentation, I'm just going to have us turn to questions and we'll go from there. Thank you. This is agenda item 8M, authorization for the executive director to initiate an update to the part 150 noise and land use compatibility study to procure consultants, develop scopes of work, and to design, implement, and guide the next SEA part 150 noise and land use compatibility study update. Hang on. There was a cut and paste there in the amount of six million dollars and a total estimated project cost of seven million dollars. Commissioners, you received a briefing on this item at our last commission meeting. This action enables the procurement of a consultant to help design a study update related to aircraft noise in communities surrounding SEA. 
In particular, the study will help to determine any changes in the 65 DNL noise contour that determines the availability of federal sound insulation funding. The completion of the previous update took place in 2014, and we hope to launch the new study by the end of 2023 after a robust scoping and community engagement process. And here to answer any questions is Stan Shepard, Senior Manager of Aviation Noise Programs. All right, Commissioner Mohammed, since you pulled the item, I'm going to let you have the first crack. Thank you. Um, well, I'm glad that uh, uh, man Senior Manager of the Airport Program is here with us. Uh, Stan, I just had a, a couple of questions. You gave us a really excellent um, briefing at the last commission meeting on the Part 150 study. Um, and your office works very closely with the FAA um, and working with local community members in general um, on reducing noise and also ev evaluating noise impacts um, in near airport communities. And I know that you mentioned a little bit about what I'm going to mention, my question. Um, it's regarding folks who have had sound installation done in their homes and that their windows have been Installated, but um, they they might have failed. Um, as part of this um, Part 150 study, can those folks report um, those uh, failed installations that they they claim? Are there other ways that they can report that information to the port? And if you could just explain how that process works, that would be really helpful. Sure, we'd be glad to to talk to anybody that may have failing windows out there. Is your mic on? It is. It is on. Okay. Maybe I'm just not loud enough here. So we'd be glad to talk to anybody that does have filling windows out there, and they can call our noise hotline at any time. And there's also public comment forms on the web that they can access through the Port of Seattle's webpage. So we can do either one of those. And as in regards to the Part 150 program, um, it is the perfect opportunity to really start those discussions on what is failing out there and people to come forward and, and explain what their failures are. That way we can go forward with a feasibility to understand is there a need for that program out there and what could that program look like going forward and if it comes out of the Part 150 as a recommendation that this is something that we need to do, we would bring that to the Commission to move forward as a project. That's really helpful. And so when someone is reporting that they've had failed windows, you said that they call the hotline. What happens after that? Is there um, a form that they fill out online? Will there be a form attached to the Part 150 study? Right now, we don't have a program for failed windows. We don't have a program set up or we don't have funding for it either way. So. Um, they can report it to us. We'll keep track of their address and their name. And during the Part 150 study, if there's any information that comes forward with that, we could get in contact with them. And we would, we'll do a lot of public outreach with the Part 150 also. So those are great times for those people to come forward, either through virtual meetings or public meetings out in the, the public also to report what they're seeing. Is there a way as part of the Part 150 study that we can solicit that information specifically while we don't have a program for it or funding at this time, but is there a, a way that we can track that information mo more closely? Um, is there a landing page where people can put in their information that as commissioners we could also share that with the public so that they know um, what, what, the pro what we're doing is and um, it gives them a way a more formal way to report this right now we are just at that very 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 beginning stages of forming forming this this study 
So right now we're asking for approval of the funding to go forward and get a consultant on board and begin the study. Once we get that consultant on board, we can really go forward with the scope of work, develop that scope of work, have you involved with that scope of work also, and make sure that um, it includes everything that a Part 150 would include and that what the community concerns are. So we're not there yet. We don't have that scope put together to move forward. We need to get that professional consulting firm on board and understand what their recommendations are, what we know our needs are as an airport, such as failed windows and other things, move forward, put that scope of work together, and then start developing how we're going to implement that study. That's right. Um, but we do have the hotline where people can report that information, so it doesn't necessarily have to be attached to each other. We could still create a form where people can report failed installations yeah, they, th they that they claim and, sure. and still create a system where we can explain what it is that we can do and what we're doing with the information. Yeah, and that's I'd pretty like much what that. we do now. I mean, we, we take that information and we talk to them about what we have available now and what may be coming up in the future too, such as the Part 150 study. So okay. happy to take the information either by our web forms or the noise hotline also. Great, thank you. Yeah, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see some sort of form that we can circulate in the community where people know what, what we're looking for and um, we're even if we don't have funding at this time, I think being able to give people the opportunity to report that and to understand that, you know, that is something that we're interested in learning, especially the fact that we're doing this big Part 150 evaluation um, would be really important. That concludes my questions. Any other commissioner questions or comments related to ADEM? ADEM? Commissioner Feldman. Thanks, Dan. And I got to tell you how much I appreciate your long-term commitment to this Thanks. effort and expertise so when we ask you questions we know we're getting the information so this has been very valuable to me over the years so um this is an expensive study this is a large undertaking and um and i just looked briefly at the um scope of work as currently defined um and and maybe partially to speak to Commissioner Muhammad's point um there is one of the bullets it says evaluating noise abatement procedure alternatives so that seems to be that's big enough to drive some of that concern through it. And while I do appreciate your desire to um, have people voluntarily come forward, I would think it may be more like statistically rigorous that we and we know everybody who has gotten replacements. So you solicit them, right? You 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 know you say it makes it an active process. And you know there's some folks will maybe have failed windows, but they don't want to deal with us, right? So. So, so the fact of the matter is we can do like a postcard program or whatever, but I would assume consistent with your question that this could very well fit within this 150 study and, or however you might see more appropriate way of addressing that question. It is. It's a, it's a good opportunity to put together a way to get the information to the community and get feedback from the community. That's what a Part 150 does. I and mean, that's really essentially how we develop those programs through a Part 150, through any of our programs, whether it's new sound insulation programs, replacement programs, whatever it is, Part 150 is the perfect opportunity to do it. Excellent. And so in terms of, um, we have in terms of the time frame, we're looking at um, the full project kickoff public outreach starting quarter one of 2024. Correct. So lots of pre-work needs to be done, identification of all the land uses, all the flight tracks, all of that data collection, an enormous amount of information has to be put together before we can actually get moving into the actual public study for forum. So it just suggests to me that um, maybe there could be 
you know, I, I can't imagine like a postcard program or something like that. We, maybe it would be great to have some of those data so when we're actually initiating the study, there would be maybe opportunities for action. Anyway, it, the phasing of this, th this has been something obviously we've heard for a long time. And so uh, first quarter 2024 does seem to be a ways out for mm -hmm. us to start that. Anyway, for future conversation, but I did have a, a couple other questions. Um, you know, part of this large amount of money is like, I don't sense, are they actually going to do acoustic monitoring? Because I know FAA doesn't use the actual right. noise levels, but evaluating the need for additional noise measurements is, again, part of the scope. Yeah, we, we do usually put that in a part 150 to just actually look at um, going out into the community, putting noise monitors out there to, to kind of a balance and check to make sure that the noise modeling that we're doing is actually accurate compared to what the noise monitoring in the community is doing. Um, so it is kind of a balance and check towards that noise model. So, oh, so this is sure the actual on-the-ground verification yeah. of that. Right. So then speaking to the comments we heard from Mr. Goebel about the monitor that they had is no longer there, are we actually circulating these monitors around for the community? And Yeah. W unfortunately, we did have one noise monitor that was put into Normandy Park that got vandalized, so we had to get replacement parts, so it was out. We're just now getting it put back together again. And we're also anticipating a request from another community that we're waiting to get right now. So that is the next phase is to get into that next request. Um, so we do move them around. All right, so the final product though is this noise compatibility plan. Yep. And help me know what that is. So noise compatibility plan is really the end result. It's gonna tell us everything that we have studied throughout the process and found feasible to move forward as a recommendation to implement. Um, a noise compatibility plan contains sound insulation programs. It contains maybe some noise abatement departure profiles, looking at aircraft types, looking at runway use, looking at everything that could have a meaningful noise reduction to that 65 DNL contour. You're going to come forward with all of those recommendations put forward. It's going to be in the form of a noise compatibility plan that's submitted to the FAA. If the FAA approves all of those elements, um, those elements that need funding associated with them, such as sound insulation programs, that makes those eligible for grant funding at 80% of those. So it's kind of that noise compatibility plan, the plan that you're going to undertake with all of these elements throughout the, the next five to 10 years. and eligibility for funding. So it starts in quarter one, um, It really depends on how fast we can go. If there's a lot of public meetings, if there's uh, public opposition to the, to the Part 150, I hope we get a lot of support for it because it's a very beneficial program for the community to go forward with. We can probably get it done in three to four years. If that has opposition or we run into issues with it. I've seen other airports take seven years or more to get through those programs. So let's keep the positive going and move it forward. We will be good. Thanks so much for that context. Yep. Thank you again, Stan. All right. Uh, can I hear a motion to approve authorization for the executive director to initiate an update to the Part 150 noise study? So moved. Second. All right. Any further comments or questions before we go to a vote? Okay. Clerk Hart, can you please call the vote? Thank you. Beginning with Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Huskawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Four ayes. Zero nays for this item. And with that, the motion passes. 
Okay, uh, we have four additional new business items today. Uh, our second item is a public hearing on the budget and property levy. Clerk Hart, can you please read the items into the record? We'll then hear from Mr. Thomas to introduce the items. Yes, let me get there, hang on a minute. This item is agenda items 10A and 10B. This is a public hearing and introduction of resolution number 3805, a resolution of the Port Commission of the Port of Seattle, adopting the final budget of the Port of Seattle for the year 2023, making, determining, and deciding the amount of taxes to be levied upon the current assessment rule, providing payment of bond redemptions and interests, cost of future capital improvements and acquisitions, and for such general purposes allowed by law, which the port deems necessary and directing the King County Council as to the specific sums to be levied on all of the assessed properties of the Port of Seattle District in the year 2023 and an accompanying introduction of resolution and public hearing for 3806, this is item 10B, a resolution of the Port Commission of the Port of Seattle specifying the dollar and percentage change and the regular property levy from the previous year per RCW 84.55.120, providing for a 2% increase of the levy from 81036634 to $82,657,367. That concludes the reading. Commissioners, before we move to item 10A, I also wanted to mention that we just completed the port's 2022 third quarter performance report. While we're not providing a public briefing on this, I want to note that you did receive the written materials last week, which covers that performance report in detail. But I wanted to provide a few notable highlights on that report, which include the following. Airport passenger volumes have continued to rebound and for the full year are expected to be up 28% over 2021 and 11% lower than our, yes, 11% lower than 2019. So getting closer to a full recovery. Uh, we concluded a very successful 2022 cruise season with a record 294 sailings and an estimated 1.3 million passengers. Federal pandemic relief funds have improved the airport's financial position and have allowed for the provision of relief grants to airport concessionaires. For the full year, we expect total operating revenues to be $25 million above budget, mainly due to higher forecasted revenues in crews and airport non-aeronautical businesses. Total operating expenses are expected to be $31.6 million favorable to the budget, largely due to delays in hiring and lower spending on outside services, reflecting slower progress on some programs and initiatives. Full year non-operating income before depreciation is forecast to be $57 million favorable to the budget and $109 million higher than 2021. Again, full details are in the materials sent to you last week, but overall, we're looking at very strong results for this year. Now on to item 10A, introduction of the 2023 budget resolution. Commissioners, today marks the final stretch in preparation of the port's 2023 budget. The, pro the process began in the summer with a number of commission budget retreats and briefings and a process to provide for commissioner input to ensure that your priorities are reflected in the budget. As it's been said many times, the budget is just a means to an end. It provides the resources necessary to deliver on the key strategies and objectives identified in the port's century agenda. 
These strategies and objectives are broken down into specific goals, initiatives, and programs that form the basis of the individual division business plans and budgets. In this proposed budget, we are making significant investments in our workforce, in resiliency efforts, sustainability, and equity, all while, all while keeping our gateways operating for the benefit of our region and to support commerce and trade. I want to acknowledge the long hours and many contributions of staff across the port in preparing the budgets, the port's 2023 budget, the many briefings, accompanying materials, and open houses. Adoption of the budget is planned for the November 29th commission meeting. Now I'll be covering the first few, first few slides in today's briefing, followed by Michael Tong, our corporate budget director. And we also have division staff available, uh, some in person and online, to answer questions if needed. So if we go to the presentation, please, next slide. Uh, this is just the outline for today's presentation. Uh, I, I will say we're going to fly fairly high since we have provided many briefings. Uh, we also have some additional materials in the appendix. So next slide, please. So again, the commission was briefed on the preliminary central services and operating division budgets back in September and October. Also, commissioners had a number of questions during those briefings uh, and answers to all of those questions were provided in writing to commissioners uh, subsequent to those briefings. Our preliminary budget document was released on October 25th, and we also held two public uh, budget open houses back in October on the 12th and 13th. So again, today, since we've already uh, reviewed the budgets in detail, we're really going to focus on subsequent changes uh, to the budget and just a very high-level summary of the budget uh, for today's public hearing. Uh, the most significant change since you last saw uh, or reviewed the budgets was that we revised the airport's 2023 employment forecast. We revised that downward by about 3%. Uh, originally, it was ha had been forecast at 97%, but upon reevaluating uh, with a great deal of uh, review and analysis from our business intelligence uh, group, we've rev revised that down to about 94.5% for the coming year. It's a very difficult thing to, to forecast, as you can imagine, given the dynamics and all the uncertainties, but that's our best estimate uh, for today. Uh, at this point. We will continue to revisit that. Uh, as we move forward. But the effect of that is that it reduced airport non-aeronautical revenues, which rely so heavily on employments. Uh, we revised the non-aeronautical revenues at the airport down by about $6.4 million. Uh, just about all the other changes, which we'll, re we'll show you briefly, were very, very minor. And again, we have uh, much more detail in the appendix uh, if you need to refer to that or have questions. Next slide, please. So again, the biggest change driven by that reduction in airport employments was that uh, airport revenues were decreased by $6.4 million. Uh, 6.5 million of that reduction is, uh, or 6.4 million was due directly to the decrease in employments. Uh, most of the other changes are pretty minor. I would, I would uh, describe them as just fine-tuning our budget, so I'm not going to go through their very small dollar amounts. You can see them on the slide here today, so I won't read them all individually, but again, they're very minor compared to the reduction in non-aeronautical revenues. Next slide, please. <clears throat> also, airport operating expenses decreased by a small amount, again, <clears throat> largely uh, tied to the reduction in airport employments forecast. Next slide, please. <clears throat> 
Again, for maritime, <clears throat> very minor re, uh, uh, revisions in operating revenue and some, uh, again, fine-tuning on uh, budgets for expenses. So again, I won't identify these. I won't go through these line by line. Central services, since we last spoke with you, there was a mid-year uh, approval of a new FTE for the police department. Uh, that's a dispatcher position and designed to help them uh, reduce some of the overtime that they're cur currently incurring. And then we made a small adjustment to the Northwest Seaport Alliance uh, distributable revenue based on some changes uh, from the, the alliance numbers. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so just some quick highlights here. Uh, so again, operating revenues up 24.4% uh, to $953.7 million. I'll note that we're just shy of a billion dollars. Uh, so I expect next year we may hit a record, uh, $1 billion revenue, operating revenues for the port. Uh, expenses up about 15% to $573.4 million. And net operating income up 42% to $380.3 million. Uh, the largest increase in revenues I would note is in the aeronautical uh, line of business which as you know is based on cost recovery. So uh, that's really reflecting some increased expenses and also the um, phasing out of some of the uh, federal relief grants that have been applied to lower uh, aeronautical uh, costs for the airlines. Uh, but overall revenues, all that revenues are pretty much up across the board again, re uh, reflecting the uh, status of the recovery in, uh, in port businesses. Um, I would note the line item there for the DRS pension credit. We do try to uh, show that adjustment for the actuals in 2020 and 2021. Uh, <clears throat> that I think we've talked with you in the past about that. That is a non-cash adjustment we get from the Department of Retirement Systems uh, that we typically get at year end. Uh, does not reflect the actual cash out-of-pocket expenditures for pension plans, uh, but it's more of an actuarial calculation. And we never know until the end of the year what it's going to be. Uh, it's been actually a credit in the past several years reflecting the strong performance in the pension uh, investment portfolio. So we've, as you can see in 2021, it was nearly $58 million, which reduced our expenses by that amount. So we try to, we try to um, uh, uh, adjust that out so we get a better apples to apples comparison when we're looking at the O&M expense. We don't know what that will be for 2022 yet. Given the performance of the stock market, it may actually reverse and we may actually be uh, booking a debit or a, an increase to expense based on that. And then finally, I'll note in the appendix, we have what we call our comprehensive budget, which goes beyond just the operating uh, revenues and expenses and uh, uh, incorporates the non-operating revenues and, ex and expenses, uh, which are significant. It's a huge wall of numbers, so we didn't want to show that to you, but uh, if you wanted to take a look at that, we'd be happy to go through if you had any questions on that particular piece. Next slide, please. We've talked with many of you th these in the past with you in the, uh, regarding some of the key drivers of the budget for 2023. We talked about uh, some changes in our compensation program where now this we're incorporating a uh, cost of living increase for non-represented staff. The assumption for next year is that's a 6% increase based on CPI. And on top of that, a 3% uh, average pay for performance increase. HR is still fine-tuning that number. It might uh, change uh, a little bit. But also to remind you that uh, for 2021, staff did not receive any pay increases. So while this is not designed as a catch-up, uh, it does help uh, offset some of that full year that staff went without any pay increases. Um, 
And then we did add a net of 56.2 FTEs port-wide. Um, actually, that's 66 new FTEs that were added, offset by 10 positions that were eliminated. Uh, I would note that there were actually over 110 FTEs that were requested as part of the budget process, so clearly not all of those were approved. Uh, on the non-payroll side, again, a number of items identified here as drivers for the budget. I really wanted to just highlight the last two. Again, uh, Executive Director Met uh, Metric really pointed out that uh, we're really uh, reinvesting in, in our employees, both through the pay increases, but also by fully restoring all the training and travel budgets back to 20 uh, 20 levels uh, that were just prior to the pandemic. And then uh, I'll have another comment later, but also I know the Commission's very interested in our community programs. We've increased funding for our community programs. Next slide, please. Speaking of which, um, community programs, as you can see on the headline there, we're adding an additional $2.5 million in our uh, various community programs, which as you can see support equity, uh, uh, environment, sustainability, uh, there's some uh, highlights here of those. Uh, there's a full list of those programs in the appendix. Again, we'd be happy to answer any questions or talk about any of the specifics that you might have, but again, it's one of those walls of numbers that we try to, try to shy away from in public presentations. And then finally, next slide please from my section, uh, the five-year CIP. As you can see, uh, for, uh, is $5.3 billion, uh, which is significant. It's probably the largest CIP in the port's history. So that we're going to have some challenges in making sure we can execute on that. And I know a lot of Executive Director Metric has placed a high degree of emphasis on being able to execute that. Uh, $725 million scheduled for next year. And what I would note is this does not include the port's contribution to the Northwest Seaport Alliance. Uh, you approved their budget yesterday. Uh, but just uh, for purposes of your um, knowledge, uh, that's additional $276 million over five years the port will be contributing for the Seaport Alliance CIP, uh, and 75 of that, uh, million of that is next year. So again, significant investments also in the Northwest Seaport Alliance. So with that, I will turn it over to Michael. Thank you, Dan. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Um, here's the uh, 2023 sources of fund. Uh, the total uh, sources fund for 2023 will be uh, a little bit over $2 billion. Uh, the two largest categories are uh, operating revenues uh, and um, bond issuance. Uh, they represented about 80% uh, of the total uh, fund uh, sources of fund next year. And then uh, passenger facility charge PFC and tax levy are also an important part of the uh, sources of fund, uh, they represent about 4.6% uh, and 4.1% uh, respectively uh, for 2023. Um, next slide, please. Um, the total users of funds is uh, a little bit over uh, 1.8 billion um, for 2023. Uh, the two largest usage are capital spending uh, and operating expenses. Uh, combined, they uh, represented about 70% uh, of the total. And then the third largest category is debt services, uh, which include uh, bond redemptions and the uh, interest payment. Uh, they represent about 24% uh, of the total. Next slide, please. So 
So uh, you got a very detailed briefing uh, on the tax levy and drop plan of finance uh, a couple of weeks ago, so I will be brief here. Uh, I would like to just remind you and the public that uh, in addition to uh, use tax levy to pay for GO bond uh, debt services, we also use tax levy to fund investments uh, in maritime infrastructure, environmental sustainability, regional transportation, uh, mobilities, and a number of community programs that uh, Dan mentioned earlier. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, with the proposed 2% levy increase uh, for 2023, uh, the levy will increase from 81 million to 82.7 million uh, in 2023, and then impacts uh, to a median home uh, owners about uh, or a little bit less uh, than one dollar uh, next year. Uh, it's also worth to point out that uh, the post levy is just about 1.2 percent of the uh, total uh, property levy levy um, uh, in the King County um, areas. Next slide please. So uh, this trust showed the 2020, uh, 2009 to 2023 uh, trends uh, for both the tax levy as well as the millage rates. The port has, uh, has lowered the levy in 2009, as you can see from the chart here, and kept it for a couple of years, and then uh, lowered it again in 2012 and keep it, uh, kept it fact for another th uh, three years and then lowered once again in 2016 and kept it for uh, two more years uh, before you will see a gradual uh, increase uh, from 2019 just to keep up with the inflation. And it's also important to point out that the millage rates have been reduced by more than half uh, from 20 cents in 2009 uh, and as high as 23 cents actually in 2012 and 2013. Uh, to just a little bit over nine percent, uh, excuse me, nine cents uh, in 2023. So it's a pretty significant reduction over the years. Um, next slide, please. And this is the final slide. Just a quick reminder of the 20, uh, the remaining of the 2023 budget schedule. Uh, you have the uh, the budget adoption uh, on November 29, and then we'll file the uh, statutory budget with the uh, the county the very next day on. Uh, November uh, 30th, and then we'll finalize uh, and release the final budget document uh, by December uh, 25th. Uh, that concludes our presentation. We'll be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Michael. As you can hear, we're putting that money to use right now. Yes. That's some of the capital <laughs> improvement plan in action. Um, so we are. Uh, just as a process reminder for commissioners, we're going to take some questions now and then we'll uh, go into, we'll open the public hearing, at which time there's another opportunity for public testimony, and then close the, the testimony and, and take the vote at that point. So um, with that in mind, any questions or comments from commissioners? Commissioner Fellman? I, I had one just in um, an ongoing question in terms of public engagement and you know, we had these what two public meetings on the 12th and 13th um, primarily virtual I believe mm -hmm. yes do we have a sense in how many folks actually engaged you know I don't know if anyone from public affairs is on the line um, I know there were some I participated in it and, I know and, we always have more staff in the, the public sometimes but you know it, it is a challenge and it I is. think it's an ongoing challenge that 
that uh, public affairs is keenly aware of and that we, I think, continue, continue to work. But, um, like, you know, when you see the increases that we put to community programs, certainly, I think the community would really like to know that, you know, and uh, but we have to sort of, you know, make it available to them in ways that we're yeah. still struggling, still struggling to find. I, I guess I had I had one question that when you talked about the downturn of what, 7.2 or so percent in the non-aeronautical revenues, I think it was. Um, which one? I think, I think, I, I think you were referring to the correction between your last the presentation, the update on the, the decrease in employments. Yeah, and so that was resulting in six point four million reduction on the, the six point four million dollar reduction in non aeronautical revenue. Right. So. Wait, was wasn't that um, was that just the correction that you got from the previous projection, or or because the, the net is up. Right from 2022, the net revenue is still up. Yes, yeah, revenue is still up, but not as much as it was when we presented the point. To you I think back it wasn't. October. It wasn't as clear. Yeah, maybe I'm it's, it's just up less. Right, exactly. Compared All to right. what we showed you back in October. That's that was the uh, clarification I was seeking, and I'll let my colleagues go while I continue to deliberate. We had about 50 people attend those two meetings. Yeah. Great. Commissioner Muhammad. Thank you. Um, Thank you for this presentation. It's always very informative to uh, hear from you all. Um, I am on page nine, uh, the community programs. Mm -hmm. It's great that we've added additional dollars. Do you have a, um, a number for how much we're spending as a whole on community programs? Yeah, if you go back to that. It's about 19 million. 19. Again, there's a slide in the appendix which shows each of the community programs by line item and it amounts to about 19 million. So we adopted the Seaport Alliance uh, budget yesterday, and one of their slides had a scorecard of uh, mm -hmm. a breakdown of um, where we where we were making certain investments, yeah. um, environmental stewardship, and I think that would be an important thing for the public to see is a scorecard of where we're making the investments, especially when it comes to community programs. Um, so that's just a suggestion that I have, um, and then. <coughs> The other question I have is on the tax levy uses um, around community. I think this is this is all great. Have we ever made um, used tax levy dollars for things like sound installation? I know that's an FAA thing, and um, we usually depend on the FAA and the federal government to take that on. But I'm just curious. Um, we've been very innovative as a as a as a port commission and as a port as a whole and so i'm wondering have we ever done that in the past we have not in generally however the one exception was a while back um with uh, some negotiated settlements around the third runway litigation the port agreed to provide some additional uh, insulation and construction for the highline school district and some of that was not eligible for federal funding so we did use some tax levy dollars to support that but beyond that uh, generally no uh, all of the sound insulation is funded by the airport and by the FAA. That's that's help, helpful information. Um, and then my last question is: is um, do you guys look at maybe what other ports are doing when you guys are setting tax levy priorities, or even just the budget as a whole? I just am curious how we compare ourselves to others. You know, not a lot. I would say uh, re regarding tax levy, uh, Port of Seattle is one of the uh, well in Washington State ports are unique in having levy authority most other states don't uh, confer tax property taxing authority on port districts some of them are subsidized in uh, other ways 
Um, so frankly, we don't spend a lot of time comparing to other ports. We have done some of that with the budgeting, uh, the equity and budgeting initiative. We have done some outreach to other ports around that particular one. But uh, generally, I'm not, I don't know if you do, but I don't think we compare a lot of our, of our budget to other ports. We, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we did to some extent. Um, part of that is the GFOA um, budget review of the award. You know, that's a quite a lot of requirement that we have to, you know, try to follow. Mm -hmm. And we all have been, uh, not this year, but in the past, we also look at some other uh, ports, uh, Port New York and New Jersey and Port Portland and so on, you know, to have a look at some of the budget document and mm -hmm. the practices. And we did share, for example, the equity in budgeting and others, you know, um, we have some coordination and uh, conversation with other port and other public agencies as, as well. Just to put a finer point, the, the GFOA is the Government Finance Officers Association. So it's a, a trade association, if you will, for, for governments, uh, state, local, municipal. And they have a Distinguished Budget um, Presentation Award. Uh, which basically they have best practices in how, how you actually put a budget document together. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been applying and actually winning that award now for something like 13 years in a row. So that's one uh, thing that we do, as Michael mentioned, to, to pursue best practices in the budget document itself in terms of being a public policy document, the kind of communication and information that's included in it. That's really helpful. Well, that concludes my questions, and so I just want to um, express gratitude to the whole finance team uh, for the exceptional work that you all do. Thanks. Thank I might w add one little comment to the question around comparing ports. Uh, the Washington Public Ports Association does publish an annual, it's a, basically a spreadsheet that shows all the ports and their sources of, of funding, and it does include uh, things like the millage rate, what each port around the state. It's a little bit apples to oranges comparison because our, say, take for instance the 19 million that we spend on community programs, that dwarfs the entire budget of probably half of those WPPA members. So it's a little bit different, but uh, I, as an officer on that exact committee right now, I could certainly send you that uh, document so you could take a look yourself. It's 11 by 14, it's a really big <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the last time I read it was on this thing. And so it was like, um, Commissioner Hasegawa. Obviously, the Northwest Seaport Alliance is having robust conversations around the future of Terminal 46 with implications for the Port of Seattle and our budget. And I'm wondering how some of uh, that is accounted for in this document here. Um, that's a good question. Not really directly because Terminal, for, well, as you know, we are uh, leasing 29 acres at the north end of Terminal 46, and that is included uh, in the maritime budget, the expense related to that. Um, but beyond that, uh, and we do have some um, pending projects in our, in our capital improvement program, more for the north end of Terminal 46, that's non-alliance property. But Terminal 46 itself is, uh, as you know, a license to the alliance, so it's primarily in their hands. Mm -hmm. And any changes to our current lease agreement that we have with the Port of Seattle then that offers some wiggle room in the future then if we're out of that. On the 29 acres? Mm -hmm. I think we're all waiting to see what happens with that. <laughs> have you accounted for that year? We are still, we are assuming that we continue to pay that. Okay, that's the assumption. Yeah, we Thank wanted you. to be conservative. All right. Uh, mostly, um, my comments relate to just the scale of this budget. I, I think sometimes we, we sort of get a nerd to, the, to how big these numbers are, but uh, when we think about the fact that, that uh, if you include the economic activity from the Seaport Alliance on licensed properties in the Port of Seattle, we clearly have broached that $1 billion figure. That's enormous, and it, it puts us in a league with um, 
organizations, both public and private, around the, the region that really do have singular impact on our economies. And so it, you know, as it, from a leadership perspective, it reminds me we are in a stewardship role here, and it's really critical that, that we do a good job with this arguably most important vote of the year um, on the overall budget. The CIP, for instance, uh, you know, we are in a historically um, robust period of, of capital construction and will be for the foreseeable future. And uh, so on the one hand, we should be really proud that we run an organization that can manage, a, you know, roughly a billion dollar annual capital construction that requires enormous amounts of expertise, coordination, um, efficiency. Uh, and um, I know that from Steve Metric throughout the organization, there is a real awareness of the need to um, balance uh, efficiency with um, good financial stewardship and uh, best practices around avoiding any sort of uh, misuse of funds. Um, I also agree with Commissioner Fellman that um, we need to continue to think about how we communicate our budget. Um, it is, you know, as we've often said up here, budgets are moral documents. We, we pay for what we care about and uh, we're a public agency. So we need to have that dialogue with the public about what the public wants us to be spending money on. And, um, you know, I think uh, I have tried to get us to think about um, in my year as president, how do we uh, recognize that there are innovations in forms of communication that would help us probably to uh, communicate even more effectively? A um, hundred years ago, this was probably the principal way of communicating to the public uh, from the commission at that public meeting. And, and I imagine the Seattle Times and the Post Intelligence would have a reporter there and they'd write it down. There'd be stories that would come out. Now we've got so many different uh, communications channels, uh, but uh, simply writing a press release, distributing it, writing a memo is probably not sufficient to reach everybody we could. Uh, and I think we would get more robust feedback from the public around things if we started to think about what it would mean to uh, have an accompanying video, uh, to have um, things distributed through social media channels in ways that would reach uh, not just our typical audience, but maybe more uh, younger people uh, and uh, who are accustomed to the more um, agile forms of communication. They're, you know, they are digital natives, as they say. So I would hope that as we um, think about uh, continued improvements in, around our budget communication that we would really lean into that aspect of it too. Um, I like to say that if a picture is worth a thousand words, a video is worth 10,000. So <laughs> let's think about that too. Um, and uh, I. No requiring greater bandwidth on your computer. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> Uh, and then finally, to Commissioner Fellman's uh, point about the adjustment, I, I think it's it's a reminder to us that we have an entire business intelligence team that is working overtime, and I, I think Borgen is on here as well, um, just from the aviation side, that is working with our industry partners because we are really a conduit for economic activity. We are reliant upon our carriers, the trucking fleets, the lots of other sources of data in order for us to figure out exactly what our budget is going to be because it's so reliant upon our tenants and concessionaires and others who really are you know doing the day-to-day -day work of moving goods and people so uh, an appreciation both to our um, partners who are willing to share with us that kind of information so we have an accurate budget and also with the team that's doing business intelligence to put all that together so uh, with that said 
Yes, absolutely. Commissioner Feldman. You know, I had the misfortune of missing your last meeting, so I think I need to get at least a couple bites at the apple here. Um, so, so no, I actually uh, not according to parliamentary <laughs> procedure, but we'll grant you that. Um, speaking to business intelligence, I, I mentioned this last time. Um, you know, in reading the lovely trade journals of maritime world that I do, um, the, one of the potential upsides of climate change disruption for the port is the. Um, inability for the Mississippi to move grain. There's just been like this huge backup of, uh, of, of barges and it seems to be persisting. Um, which suggests to me that, you know, getting that still has to get to market, that there may be in fact an upside to training it to our gateway. But in fact, we're forecasting a 4% decrease. And, and I, I just don't know, it would be kind of interesting to uh, to, to check on this, it was a relatively recent incident, but it's looking like it's persisting. Mm. And so, and grain was doing pretty good before, right? So, I, and you know, you would think with Ukraine being down, I mean, it just seems like, I'm just surprised that grain is being seen as a, an, in a downward trend. But I mean, I don't suggest to be as intelligent as some businesses, but. Um, if I could comment on that. Yeah. Um, so we do get that number from our tenant, Louis Dreyfus, so it's based on their forecast. I think part of the issue right now is that the U.S. dollar is really strong, so I think that's affecting exports. Most, most of that grain goes to Asia. I think that's part of the issue. Got it. Well, obviously, Louis knows how to invest. So yeah. We went through that before. Getting back to the question of um, Louis, we're buds. So um, getting back to the question of rolling out the budget, I, I don't understand what is this couple of week um, interval between actually filing the statutory budget in King County and releasing the budget? Uh, you're looking at the releasing the budget document. So we are, we've already put out the preliminary budget document a few weeks ago. We tried to get that out three weeks ahead of first reading. Yeah, I have that. Michael's Phone book got right that. here. But what we do, <laughs> since, since that was published a, you know, a three weeks ago, we, as we just talked about, there have been some changes uh, to the budget. So what we do is we update that document with all the final numbers, and then we issue the final budget document in mid-December. So that's what you're looking at there. That's just the budget document. The, the, that's different than filing with the county. Okay, so, but the, so would there be any, you can't change it once you file it with the county, though. No. Right, so, but there's, so what is it, just the printing delay? It's because you have the filing with the county at November 30, and then you have the publication of the document on December 15th. I'll, I'll yeah, defer to Michael since his team is the one who's, ones who have to do that. So I'm happy to answer that. Um, so when we filed the statutory budget with, uh, with King County, uh, so basically, is the uh, statutory budget, which basically is the section uh, in the parent budget document, is section uh, 11. Um, it's just a few so it's pages. only one part of that, small part of that. But you know, to order to in order to update the whole uh, budget book, you know, it takes a little bit time. Um, so that's part of the reason we usually take a little bit longer to update everything, and um, you know, because um, there's certainly have some changes every year uh, since we published the pyramid budget document. So I was just wondering, is it actually a physical production delay in part to do that? Because one of the things that I think what we find is that the city and the county release their budgets and they're always a news item. And to the degree that we are releasing at a similar time and showing our relative importance, you know, Tom Albert used to always say we punch below our weight and um but 
we have to put ourselves in the context of the other budgets that are going around. So to the degree that this is just a printing press problem or you know something like that, the fact that we have some ability to put out a digital version until a hard copy is out. I'm just looking at trying to do an alignment that you know makes us relevant con you know contextually. And so I, I mean, so you're suggesting you'd like to see the document out sooner, if possible. If you know, or you know, I don't know exactly the date that the city and the county produced theirs, but I just know when you start releasing something December 15th, you're not getting a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. You know, when people have made their flights through our airport. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so what what are the dates that the city and the county released theirs? Right around, I mean, it's when they decide Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. So that's right. So November 30th, mm -hmm. we. You know, we officially are done. Right. Right. So that's where shortly after Thanksgiving, it seems to me that's when we could kind of collectively roll something out. Anyway, I just didn't know what that was just a bureaucratic, you know, it's a physical printing something like this is an enormous undertaking. So yeah, I don't deny the fact there's a delay, but I don't think it's necessarily, uh, you know, it doesn't mean we can't talk about it. No, it's really just the staff time involved in going through the document, all the uh, and all the pages, and updating and proofreading and getting everything ready and perfect before we take it to the printer. The printing is it's a quick process generally, but it's and it sounds to me like that December fifteenth is a perfunctory thing to make sure all the details are correct. Right. But we can do all the PR we want as once of, it's filed. As far as November, as far as 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 of November thirty. Yeah, or arguably right after we authorize it. And as a reminder, Commissioner, we also had the budget in brief, which, uh, correct me. Which is my favorite document. Will, 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 will that <laughs> one be know. ready before the 15th? Uh, that probably will be uh, earlier this year. Uh, in the past, as you probably know, we still have some changes in the of the budget or after the, you know, so we have to update some uh, information and lots of table and graft. Uh, but this year, assume that there's no more changes, you know, um, during the adoption of the budget. So we could, um, our plans actually probably want to get it done earlier, um, you know, so um, probably a week or so, but that's what we're hoping for. So as you know, having painfully gone through this twice with me, that I do really think that it's a great communication document mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's layout, it's really readable and actually so in the course of trying to get a digital communication out, I think that's our vehicle in one of the great ways. And to your point about video, I think it was maybe as a function of the plague I mean, COVID, that, um, that we did these video rollouts. So, you know, we, we had this high production expensive thing that we don't probably need to do as quite the level. But I think for two years during COVID, there was a whole, you know, song and dance routine that I don't know how many hits something like that got, but it was, if we wanted to do that, we know how to do it. I just think, and, and I'm certainly not suggesting that staff are not scrubbing the opportunities, but there are many vehicles and I just think Given how much time it takes to do the budget and brief, I'd just like to see us exercise it as far as we can. Okay, we'll see what we can do. Thanks for the feedback. Thanks. And I also would like to add that uh, kind of along the line, um, you know, we, uh, with the help from external relations, uh, we created a, uh, a, a budget-specific page, uh, you know, for the last couple of years, including this year's, and also uh, include all those public meetings and some of the budget information on the website as well, um, you know, quite early in the process. And then um, the uh, public open house, you know, the PowerPoint and the presentation also uh, can be found on, from the public website along with the budget in beef and um, some other, you know, budget information linked to other budget information. So I think 
that's part of our effort try to you know uh, reach out to the community as well and then we could probably just use our networks to you give us those tools and we could you know amplify it uh, Commissioner Hasegawa. Um, yeah, uh, just one final recommendation, Dan, that you should also personally choreograph a dance to go with that video, <laughs> and that will help it trend on TikTok. Great. We'll, we'll take that into consideration. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. At this time, I'll go ahead and open the public hearing on resolutions numbers 3805 and 3806. Each speaker has two minutes to address the commission. Clerk Hart, do we have anyone signed up to give testimony on this item? We do not have anyone signed up today. If you would like to call for anybody, either on Teams or in the room, that might. Is there anyone who did not sign up but would like to speak, either uh, virtually or in person? Okay. Having no additional speakers, I'll go ahead and close this public hearing and move discussion to the commission. Is there a motion to introduce resolution numbers three eight zero five and three eight zero six? So moved. Second. Commissioners, are there any additional questions at this time? Seeing no further discussion, Clerk Hart, can you please call the roll for the vote? Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. For the vote, beginning with Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Four ayes, zero nays for this item. The motion to introduce resolution numbers 3805 and 3806 passes. This item will be back before the commission for consideration of adoption at the November 29th, 2022 meeting. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record. We'll then hear from Mr. Thomas to introduce the item. Thank you. This is agenda item 10C, introduction of resolution number 3807, a resolution of the Port of Seattle Commission amending the policy directive for salaries and benefits for employees not covered by a collective bargaining agreement established by resolution number 3790 and providing an effective date for all amendments of January 1, 2023. Commissioners, next you will hear about proposed changes to our salary and benefits at the port. Among the proposed changes are adding cost of living increases for non-represented employees, adding a definition for pay equity, a port emergency pay program, and requesting the ability for a multilingual pay program. Here to make the presentation is Tammy Woodard, Woodard HR Director, Total Rewards, and Sandra Spellmeyer, Total Rewards Manager. Thank you, Mr. Thomas, and good afternoon, Commissioners. Sandra and I are here to request introduction of resolution 3807, the 2023 salary and benefits resolution that will update the port salary and benefits policy directive. Sandra will share some background information with you and then review the recommended changes that are the type of changes that we recommend on a regular basis to the salary and benefits policy directive. I will then review some of the more unique, unique changes that we are requesting for this year. Thank you, Tammy. Good afternoon, commissioners. The salary and benefits resolution updates the salary and benefits policy directive, which specifies the pay and benefit programs for non-representative employees at the port. Per RCW 5308-170, it is required that the port commission authorizes revisions to the pay and benefits programs that are part of the port's overall total rewards package for non-represented employees. This year's changes include regular updates to the resolution, like adjustments to the pay range structure, but it also includes additions to the pay program resulting from the compensation program. I'm sorry, compens compensation project. We are excited about this project, which is, which is in year two of a three-year project plan. 
and includes involvement of many employees across the port along with a consultant to review the non-representative pay program and identify what works well and what could work better. The port's focus is to ensure that the pay program for non-represented employees supports attraction and retention of employees. The project to date includes multiple recommendations, including adjustments to existing aspects of the programs and some new elements. Next slide, please. Can we go to slide three, please? Oh, that was my fault. No, it's okay. All right. The 2023 recommendation changes fall into two main categories of for this year. The first category is regular ongoing changes based on normal oversight of the total rewards programs for pay and benefits. And the second category are recommendations coming from the compensation project um, and the outcomes that are being driven by that work. I will be going over I will be going through the regular changes first and then Tammy will speak to the compensation project related changes. Next slide please. Our first recommendation is to remove workplace responsibility in the reporting requirements section under general counsel. This group will be moving under human resources in 2023. Next slide, please. We are also recommending that we add Washington paid sick leave under the mandated benefits section. This required sick leave benefit for overtime eligible employees was implemented in 2020 as requirement by the state of Washington. This, adi this addition is just to ensure that our salary and benefits policy directive aligns with the benefits we are providing our employees. We are also recommending we remove the COVID-19 vaccination verification incentive day from the paid leave section. This leave benefit was added specifically to the 2022 salary and benefits resolution for the intent that this benefit would be only specific to 2022. Next slide, please. Now I'm going to hand it off to Tammy to discuss our compensation project related changes. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra. The pay ranges at the port reflect the minimum and maximum amount that the port pays to employees whose jobs are assigned to any particular range. Employees can be paid anywhere within that range from the minimum to the maximum. Our goal is to have the ranges reflect what other employers are paying in the market for similar work. When port pay ranges increase, employees do not receive automatic increases equal to the range increase. Only employees whose pay is less than the new minimum of their pay range receive an automatic adjustment and those adjustments are only to the minimum of the new pay range. For 2023, we are recommending a 4% increase to the ranges for our non-represented employees. With this increase, the range for grade seven will have a minimum that is less than the 2023 City of Seattle minimum wage, so we are recommending that we eliminate this grade. The minimum of the grade seven, sorry, grade eight range will be only slightly above the 2023 City of Seattle minimum wage, so we are also recommending eliminating that grade. We do have one employee whose job is assigned to a grade seven, the grade seven range. We will move that job to the grade nine range and we will make sure that the employee's pay is at least the minimum of the grade nine pay range. There are two jobs in, that are assigned to grade eight. Those are both jobs that have not been filled for some time. We've confirmed that the department where those reside do not have any intentions of filling them in the future. We will be inactivating those jobs as we eliminate the grade eight range. Next slide, please. We are also recommending that we add two new definitions to the definition section of the salary and benefits policy directive. These additions will describe these specific terms 
for the use at the Port of Seattle, both within the Salary and Benefits Policy Directive, in policies, and in other program documents related to these programs. These additions describe um, these, sorry, these definitions also support the recommendations that are coming from the compensation project. The new definitions, as we recommended them for the Salary and Benefits Policy Directive, are as you see on the slide here. This is the, the exact language that we are recommending that you add. So next slide, please. As our team reviewed the, the pay practices section of the current policy directive and looked at adding some new items to these areas, we realized that the section has grown and now includes both descriptions of pay practices as well as pay types. To support readability of this section, we are re recommending creating a new pay types section in addition to the pay practices. And then we are recommending that we move some of the items out of the current pay practices into the new pay types. In addition um, to the items that you see here listed on the slide that we recommend moving out of pay practices into pay types, we are recommending that we maintain several in the uh, pay types section. Sorry, in the pay practices section. And these, what we are recommending we keep there are the description of the port standard work schedule, the description of the port standard payroll cycle and pay dates, and the description of how pay rates for new employees are established. The new pay sections type will include these items on the bottom of the slide as well as some new ones that we will be recommending. Next slide, please. So in addition to those items that we, were, we just showed you are recommending that we maintain we are recommending that we add these new ones. COLA will be an increase awarded to employees based on changes to the consumer price index. COLA plus is an additional 1% increase that will be awarded to employees whose pay is less than two times the city of Seattle minimum wage. The threshold for employees receiving this additional increase for 2023 will be $77,500, the annual amount that is equal to the 2023 City of Seattle minimum wage of $18.69 times two. We're recommending that we add a multilingual pay premium, and that will be an amount on top of employees' regular pay that they receive when they provide language services at the request of the port. Employees will need to have proven proficiency in the other language to be eligible to provide this service and receive the premium. Emergency pay will be a pay program that will provide additional pay to employees whose jobs are exempt from overtime pay when they must work, for, work more than their normal work schedule in the event of a port emergency, like a major power outage, a big earthquake, or a major snow event. We are also recommending that we change the title of ICT standby pay to just straight standby pay. This program is currently specific to overtime eligible employees in our ICT department. The change will per permit us to review the port's use of standby pay more broadly and determine where and when it may be appropriate to pay employees when their activities during non-work hours are limited by a requirement that they be able to respond to take care of an emergency at the port. Next slide, please. 
The costs of the salary and benefit policy directive that we are recommending are for the most part included in the 2023 budget that you just heard about. Emergency pay and multilingual pay are dif difficult to estimate as we cannot forecast when or to what extent they will be needed. The other changes are easier for us to estimate based on current um, employees and their pay levels. We are estimating the cost of the COLA increase to be about $8.2 million for the port's non-represented employees, and that is based on a 6% COLA increase. The COLA calculations we will be using has a 6% cap, and we are anticipating that the calculation uh, that we will be using going forward when we do have all of the data points will produce a COLA increase amount that exceeds 6%, so we plan, we anticipate applying the cap for 2023 to get to the 6% COLA. So we estimate the cost of the COLA plus at an additional $103,000, and we expect about 165 employees to have pay rates below the threshold and be eligible for that additional 1% COLA increase. Finally, with the recommended 4% increase to the ranges, we estimate fewer than 30 employees will have their pay increase to the minimum of their new range, and we expect the cost of this to be less than $40,000. Next slide, please. So that's the information we have for you today. Sandra and I are happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you, Sandra. Commissioners, do you have any questions at this time for staff? Commissioner, how's it going? Thank you. Um, so looking at slide eight, um, I'm wondering how this proposal reflects pay equity as we understand it with its new definition. And I'm also wondering if there were any insights or lessons learned from the woman of color assessment that have been applied to this strategy. So the, what we're talking about here on slide eight is really moving things around in the policy directive so that we've got pay practices separated from pay types. So that in and of itself does not have um, any implication or no outcome based on the women of color assessment. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the women of color assessment as well as the overall um, equity assessment that the port conducted were um, done after the port did a port-wide pay, pay survey and follow-up focus groups for non-represented employees. And we found very similar outcomes from the work we did at the beginning of the compensation program and what came out of the equity assessment and then what we're hearing in the, the women of color assessment, particularly um, interest in COLA, COLA pay, and an, an interest in maintaining our pay for performance program, but also making sure that we do what we can to remove any bias that may be mm -hmm. um, inherent in that, either um, unintended bias or you know the ex things that may be um, totally incidental. Or things that you know may have more of a direct cause. So, those are um, that is a, a project that HR will be taking on starting next year to look at the pay for performance program, which is um, 
referenced generally in the policy directive that that's the way employees get their um, employees move through their pay range and that is a it's based on performance reviews we will maintain that system throughout this year probably through next year while we study the the program and come up with something new and different and try to find a better way to do it um, in all of the years that I've been working in compensation nobody's found that silver, silver bullet for a performance management system and a, a merit type pay program but I, I do think that there are opportunities at the port to build some more structure and some more expectations around it so that will be coming commissioner next year what we have included this year is, um, specifically related to to equity is the COLA plus where we are recognizing that the employees who are at the lower end of our pay scale um, have are, are impacted more greatly than employees in the higher end of the pay scale and so awarding that slightly more COLA increase for them and um, adding the, ec the pay equity definition so those are those are the beginning steps of things that we're asking you to approve for this year that will allow us to continue work into next year as we look at implementing designs of um, new designs modified designs of our pay program versus what we have today I think that's really great as we work to try and address some of the disparities that exist between people who are performing similar job functions or have similar titles but between whites and non-whites or males and non-males that um, that COLA plus program is a tool that we have and a foundation to build upon and I just really commend this as a beginning framework and acknowledgement that there's room to be able to build upon it and, and there's more that that the port can do I have a follow-up question um, so I also really applaud um, the multilingual pay premium that's a wonderful strategy I think and I'm wondering um, if you could expand a little bit more on some of the factors that you think might contribute to making it really challenging to be able to calculate around oh, to calculate the cost yeah so we're asking you to approve us putting a program in place we don't have all of the details uh, determined yet. This again came out of the compensation program mm -hmm. and we are looking at different ways for being able to um, have employees demonstrate their proficiency in particular languages so we can then build a database of employees who can help us out when we need you know, language skills in a particular area. And since we don't have that today we're not sure how frequently employees may be called upon to do that mm -hmm. so we're we're anticipating a program that says when the port needs to have language skills we will ask people from that group that we will identify to do that for us and so we think it may be a limited amount but we really don't know we don't know what we don't know at this point we don't know that if there may be more opportunities for us to call on our employees who have those skills to help mm -hmm. out in, um, in in different settings we could imagine that it could be very limited or depending on um, what the port is doing where and when there might be a, a request for um, 
I don't, could be community events. We just don't know yet. Right. We don't know how big the bread box is. Yeah, I I can understand that as as being really challenging. My phone is going crazy. I want to put it on silent. Um, but, you know, I think about how it is a wonderful resource to be able to um, lean on folks that we do have internally as opposed to maybe outsourcing for those resources. But I also know, like, for example, I personally am certified in real estate translation services mm -hmm. in, for Spanish, but that's very different than being able to provide that as a, as a service in you know, medicine or another field. Every field has mm. its own language, if you will. It's, um, and so there's just, I know that there's a lot of layers to, um, and to what extent we'd be able to lean on folks. But um, there's also something to be said about pe somebody who speaks something in a native language versus somebody who's been taught it mm. academically. Um, and so um, I'm interested in following that internal conversation that you're having as you're navigating that and what you're discovering and sort of how you're troubleshooting and form building around that mm -hmm. um, I think that's that's really um, really interesting but I do th I, I love the proposal of the idea of multilingual pay premiums and maybe a centralized resource as um, is particularly an emergency situation that interdepartmentally we could lean on to get messages out swiftly to members of the public and each other as colleagues um, okay, no further questions at this time. Thank you. Commissioner Feldman. Yeah, I, I, I was going to build on that very point that uh, Commissioner Hasegawa was making. You know, I've had the pleasure of traveling with her in Spain. We'll be going to Japan, and her language skills are extremely valuable, as is Commissioner Calkins and Cho. I speak Brooklynese for whatever use that is, <laughs> but um, no, but yeah. it's actually. Uh, you don't get a pay premium for, for that. <laughs> I know, no, but I'm saying none of us get a pay premium for any of this. But you know, like when Luis is in a in a room with, like we were just celebrating our police chiefs. You know, for Luis to be able to communicate with the community directly. These are whether or not you're providing translation purposes as a contract. That's something as a you know employment job thing, but. I think we should be encouraging multilingual capabilities for just being an organization that deals with a diverse community. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact you have this category, and I urge you to look at it in a broad sense because it's a, it really makes us the welcoming port that we want to be, and it makes us better at what we do. Thank you for that. Commissioner Mohammed. Thank you. Um, well, First of all, thank you both for uh, your presentation. Uh, recruitment and retention is obviously a very critical part of our work, and so um, this is, is very important stuff that you guys are working on. Um, my question was actually around um, how does the pay and benefit compare to represented employees when we're talking about workload, and so um, comparing represented employees to non-represented employees and obviously those who are represented the, the unions negotiate those contracts and so it's not exactly the same but i'm wondering was there some did you guys look into some of those contracts how do we compare that when it comes to their workload and how that's any comparison that was done there we don't specifically compare um what we have in our our total rewards package for non-represented employees to the different packages and the different um, collective bargaining agreements, we are very well aware of them. 
Um, Sandra and her team actively support implementing the pay and benefits for all of our represented employees. We've got people um, who report to another one of the managers on my team who provide a lot of the data gathering and analysis to support the nego negotiations. So we're very aware of what is in the collective bargaining agreements and um, one of the reasons that we put the 6% cap on the COLA program is that many of our collective bargaining agreements have COLA increases included in them and they often have a 6% cap. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not really sure what you're asking about the workload aspect of that commissioner, but from a standpoint of comparability, you know, they're, they're different because we're offering a package that we want to offer to maintain the port uh, as an employer based on our total rewards philosophy that offers a benefits package better than market. We want to offer pay that is comparable to market and that's a, a different way of looking at pay and benefits than the unions often take when they negotiate with our labor relations folks. So you've answered my question. I just okay, wanted great. to hear if you if there were some thoughts there, and so you guys are considering that and and appreciate that. Um, the other question I had is, um, you shared that uh, you guys are going to include the Washington paid sick leave policy as part of this, and so I'm also uh, wondering, do employees support that level? Is that the type of support that they're looking for? Have you guys heard from employees on that? I'm not sure what you're asking. Sorry. So, so the you you said that the that you guys are including the Washington paid sick leave policy, and so my question is: Do employees support that level of support being provided? Is that a policy that they have uh, so, that yeah. you guys have engaged them on? Go ahead. Okay. Um, we actually implemented the Washington State. Um, paid leave policy in 2020. We're just aligning the directive to um, mirror what our policy is. And um, it was a state regulation. And our employees are you know, taking advantage of that for our um, um, non-exempt employees that have that protected leave. So, Great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and then I, I thought also, similar to Commissioner Hasegawa and Fellman, the multilingual pay mm -hmm. premium is free. Um, I, I'm assuming you guys don't have a set dollar amount. The city of Seattle and King County both have language um, premium amounts, and that would be a great place to look. Mm -hmm. And I think um, whatever sort of dollar amount or what policy you guys set around that, sharing that information with our tenants would also be really great. Mm -hmm. I think the airport tenants in particular could benefit from something like this. Mm -hmm. um, I have witnessed uh, airport employees providing those services to customers who are walking through the airport and I think that is really a place that you see a program like this being very beneficial and so that's just something to keep in mind and we did start with the the city of Seattle and King County's policies so the team that's working on this got them as a, a starting point and we're going from there Terrific. Well, thank you so much. I, yeah, it's. Um, I appreciate you guys digging into the nuts and bolts of the work that you do. There's clearly a an incredible level of professional acumen to be able to put this stuff together. You know, I had a small business prior to becoming a commissioner, and even with those 35 employees, the it, 
compensation was always bedeviling because you know every time you adjusted one thing it felt like every other thing came into play but I, I see that what you're attempting to do here with these changes is to accomplish a couple of things one is to, to be able to attract and retain great people which as we talked about earlier is necessary to pull off these really ambitious goals that we have in our budget then the other is uh, to to and as a commissioner who has a um, as a as a member of the port community, I have some visibility into this. Use our compensation and benefits plan to also improve uh, people's well-being um, as employees of the port, um, which we think you know that's some enlightened self-interest. There, we want to make sure our folks are healthy and happy, and but at the same time. You know, uh, I want to know that every one of the 2,200 people that work at the Port of Seattle is, you know, not just for the eight hours a day that they're here, but for the rest of their lives is um, really able to live fulfilling lives of where they have access to health and wellness. So I appreciate that so much of our benefit package has to do with those aspects of, of the whole person. So thank you for your presentation. Uh, hearing no further questions for this item, is there a motion and a second? So moved. All right, the motion was made and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Beginning with Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you, and Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you, four ayes, zero nays for this item. All right, the motion passes. Thank you Thank so you. much again. Resolution number 3807 has been introduced and it will be back before the Commission for Consideration of Adoption on November 29th, 2022. Clerk Hart, can you please read the next item into the record? We'll then hear from Mr. Thomas to introduce the item. Yes, this is um, agenda item 10D, authorization for the executive director to execute a series of contracts for worker outreach, training, retention, and wraparound services in construction trades and green jobs and for program evaluation in the estimated total amount of $4,750,000. Commissioners, investing in training, outreach, navigation, and wraparound services for construction trades is an integral part of our workforce development strategy. This next item will request authorization to not only continue our multi-year investment in this initiative, but significantly increase our commitment to this effort. Our presenters are Luis Navarro, Director of Workforce Development, and Carl Hugel, Manager of Workforce Development Construction Trades. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Commissioners and Chief Financial <laughs> Officer Thomas. Thank you very much. It is great to be here in person talking to you and uh, to the community about this important work. I am Luis Navarro, Director of Workforce Development in the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. My introductory remarks I'm going to read, so I'll leave plenty of time for my colleague to make the actual presentation on, on the slides. Today we are presenting you with an authorization request for multi-year funding of training programs in construction trades to continue to attract and support people of color and women in the trades. This work supports the port's century agenda strategy of using the port's influence as an institution to promote workforce development. This work is also supported by other Port Commission actions and by the Revised Code of Washington or RCW 5308245 that describes workforce development as a substantial public benefit consistent with the Port's Commission uh, economic development goals. I'm also, uh, I also want to say that we provide this service 
and multi-language to many of our communities. So, so with that, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, Carl Hugel, for the presentation. Carl. Uh, thank you so much. Um, if you can go to the next slide, please. And to the next slide. So good afternoon. I'm Carl Hugel, Workforce Development Program Manager, Data Analyst uh, for Construction Pathways here at the port. Uh, he, him pronouns. Um, as you're aware, in 2018, the Workforce uh, Development um, received commission authorization to support outreach, training, and placement. Um, next slide, please. And the next one. Um, to uh, support, thank you so much. Uh, to support outreach, training, and placement services and construction trades. Uh, funding associated um, with this authorization went to job readiness programs and pre-apprenticeship programs like um, an Urban League of Metropolitan Seattle, a new and the Iron Workers pre-apprenticeship programs. Uh, throughout the authorization, um, we have outreach for over 600 participants, enrolled 533 participants, uh, graduated 352 participants, uh, apprentices, and uh, placed 312 into the apprenticeship program uh, spanning the Tri-County region. Uh, we've exceeded the goals of the 2018 authorization and we still have cohorts, training cohorts set to graduate in November and December of this year, supported by this very same authorization. Uh, but as the sun sets, uh, part of the reason why we're here is because we want to make sure that we continue to do this, to do this work. These programs that we selected um, for this current authorization uh, were asked to recruit from communities of color to diversify the industry uh, that has historically sidestepped the virtues of equity. We also ask that these uh, organizations provide opportunities for underserved communities and bring more women into this space. These provisions uh, create equitable access for construction training and employment by focusing on the entire uh, construction worker uh, development process. They delivered on that and more. Their recruiting efforts and training efforts uh, make construction culture more inviting um, and appealing as a first choice career. Additionally, uh, news Rise Up program, which was designed to target bullying, hazing, and, and racism on job sites for apprentices, training for apprentices and journey persons, along with the provisions of wraparound services, which we were given um, with RCW 53.08.245, and, um, and the provisions that you all provided us, uh, uh, prove significant and increase in the retention over the uh, last two years of this authorization. Next slide, please. And so what you'll see here is this, in this map, um, it speaks to the reach and efforts that the uh, selected organizations went to support the growth of the trades within King County. Uh, you'll find that we have our priority hire zip codes, which are zip codes that, are, that focus on uh, women, I'm sorry, um, uh, focus on oh, the, um, Say in Seattle and King County, they have high densities of people living under 200% of the poverty line, uh, unemployment rates, and those under 25 with a, uh, with a, without a college degree. Uh, they make up 31 of the 116 zip codes within King County. 60% uh, of those uh, participants that came through our program came from those priority zip codes, with Federal Way having the highest concentration of apprentices, followed by downtown Seattle, Tequila, Rainier Beach and Rainier um, Skyway. Um, they have started making a, earning a wage of $26 an hour and increasing steadily throughout the apprenticeship. Next slide, please. So why are we here? We're here to 
uh, ask for your continued support uh, for multi-year authorization um, uh, to allow for us to do this year over year. Um, last year, um, the regional public agencies commissioned com community attributes to conduct a workforce demand analysis of the construction traits in the Tri-County region. Their findings show that while this workforce supply and demand gap has decreased over the past five years, there's significant need for support uh, of pre-apprenticeship programs to stimulate the growth of the trades. Uh, with the projected shortages among crafts, construction truck drivers, first-line supervisors, and the rise of clean energy projects, the need to support significant, uh, to continue to support this work proves significant. Next slide. And this, this also uh, factors into what we do here at the port. You'll see the impacts of our projects in this, in this slide, uh, the number of uh, labor hours anticipated uh, that will be needed for, to complete projects at the port over the next five years, are, which you see here. Among the public agencies that provided, that, that did the work of uh, providing data to community attributes, uh, we have the second highest number of labor hours needed for future projects. And this is not including the infrastructure funding that we'll get over the next couple years. Next slide. So to continue to, uh, uh, to simulate the growth of the trades, we're asking you all uh, to uh, approve, uh, provide support for multi-authorization. We anticipate that this will cost $4.75 million and will emphasize outreach to the underserved training and placement uh, for apprentices and, and much needed critical needs and critical skills on the job site and retention services support attrition uh, for up to four years. Now what that means is that for most of our apprentices uh, and most of our apprenticeship programs, that means that our apprentices will be um, uh, supported over the course of the entire apprenticeship. Uh, one of the questions that you asked us, Commissioner Hasegawa, back in May was how high is the ceiling? And so this is an investment into determining the height of that ceiling. So this will include training to support clean energy projects, backing the provisions outlined in the 2022 order adopted by the commission earlier this year concerning youth career launch and construction. We have, a, we have the youth career launch program in Maritime, but this is an opportunity to serve as a pilot for construction. Um, um, and then training for women and people of color in leadership roles uh, like uh, project management and basic foreman. Um, Next slide, please. So this authorization is broken up into three phases, outreach, training, and placement. Outreach will continue to happen, um, which will recruit, um, include recruitment, screening, and refer referral services uh, to enroll construction pre-apprentices and apprentices uh, to increase the number of underrepresented folks. Uh, part of this process is assessing individuals' uh, skills, readiness, ability to meet the minimum requirement for entry, and any barriers to entering and succeeding in the, in the trades. For training, training will focus on building job readiness skills uh, and certifications necessary to enter the job site like OSHA 10, flagger, forklift, and CPR. And it will also cover um, the training for women and people of color to enter um, uh, project management and foreman positions on our job sites along with training that focused explicitly on clean and renewable energy. And for navigation and retention, uh, we're looking at an emphasis on uh, mentorship, 
uh, networking opportunities for apprentices, case management, and support services to continue, such as work boots, transportation, um, and tools. We're asking that these apprentices be supported for up to four years. Uh, navigation service support will also be rendered to uh, those youth who graduate from our CTE programs at our high schools. Uh, they tend, if they have a B plus or above in certain school districts, they get preference into the building trades. And so we want to make sure that they are supported the same way that a college advisor supports a college student when they go into the, when they go to college. Um, um, and all of these, um, the, these, every school districts, they have credential in the backing of the Washington State Apprenticeship Training Council. And so this is an opportunity for us to um, diversify the construction trades along with, um, uh, you know, making this a younger trade. Um, next slide, please. Uh, funding these uh, efforts for multiple years will allow us to seal the leaks in the uh, skilled worker pipeline. Currently, about 1,500 um, start, in the, it start their career in the construction trades annually, but over the course of four to five years, um, they unfortunately went out of the trades uh, because they're not getting sufficient support or guidance, uh, or the work is really hard. And so we want to make sure that uh, by providing training, case management, career navigation, support services, and leadership training, uh, it will go a long way to shaping the future of the industry. Next slide. So with this funding, we anticipate nearly doubling the number of placements that we have in the current authorization and cutting more profoundly into the workforce demand gap while supporting more apprentices to journey. Next slide. And so uh, with your approval, we, we anticipate that uh, this process will move us to begin working with our procurement team uh, as early as late this month. And uh, we, have to, we plan on having these contracts executed by the middle of Q2 2023. Next slide. There's nothing further pending your questions. Before you uh, uh, take a question, Commissioner, there is one important element we mentioned, and that is our collaboration with other public owners, City of Seattle, Sound Transit, King County. We don't want to do this alone. They also have funding programs and workforce development programs. And by working together, including Washington State Department of Transportation, by working together, then we have a unified voice because we're pulling from the same uh, demographics. We're also working with the same contractors, and we're trying to work together so the dollars that each of us uh, public agencies spend are leveraged and go farther. So uh, it's also important that we continue with- Luis, could you make sure your mic is on? I just oh, got a note. My there. apologies. There we go. Thank you. I can certainly repeat that. And I'll just basically say that it is truly important that we continue to work with our public partners, the City of Seattle, Sound Transit, King County, and Washington State Department of Transportation to ensure that we all work together in, in ensuring that people of color, immigrants and refugees and women have access to this important and very uh, good career in the trades. And uh, our, it is important that we also continue the work. So your approval today would um, put us on that road. And we ask you that you approve the multi-year request with the amount of money that we have selected. Thank you. Thank you, Luis. Thank you, Carl. Any questions from commissioners? Thank right. you, Louise. Commissioner, okay. Commissioner Mohammed. Point of order, right? Thank you. Uh, 
Well, Carl and Louise, thank you both for the presentation and this really important work that you all are doing, um, workforce development and creating pipelines into uh, the constructions, diversifying the trades is, is something I, I care deeply about and um, just appreciate the presentation that, um, and the work that you all are doing. Um, my question is around, I had the slide just now, but it's the slide where the partners are all on. It's slide three. Slide three. Yeah, slide three. Um, the partners and the stakeholders. So I'm thinking about outreach and um, reaching communities that um, are hard to reach sometimes. Uh, it looks like there's a lot of government entities on here. I see the Urban League. How are we partnering with other nonprofit uh, organizations um, to have them help with some of that outreach that needs to be done? Let, I, would, let me, I would imagine there'd be more partners yes. on here. So the list would be very long uh, yeah. for each of us, city and uh, the port, list our partners, in particular in the communities that we're trying to reach. Uh, and the priority higher zip codes and the equity index is a very important tool for us, the equity index uh, that the Port of Seattle has created. We also ask our partners who are providing the training, say ANU or the Urban League and others to bring their partners to our fairs that, and outreach events. Carl uh, can probably talk more about that, but we ask them to bring their partners and we also directly invite them to come and attend the outreach events because we want to reach out to communities of color, immigrant, refugee communities, so mm -hmm. they also listen to the message of the great jobs and the trades. Carl, you want to add something? No, oh, thank you, Luis. No, so we, as Luis say, stated, uh, we ask our community-based organizations our training organizations, um, and we even directly work with our with those uh, uh, community-based organizations to provide outreach through outreach events, through um, um, invite invitations to join uh, the regional pre-apprenticeship collaboration where we discuss uh, pre-apprenticeship matters and we um, re we rely on community to really kind of uh, provide us some input into what they want to see. Uh, to support the, the growth of the trades, to support the growth of the industries. Uh, we also work, myself, Luis, and, and, and Tiffany on our team, we also work internally to um, um, to meet with those community-based organizations to share with them some mm -hmm. of the things that we're working on and providing referrals. We also provide this book, uh, which is the uh, 2022 Construction Apprenticeship Guidebook, which gives them an opportunity to see exactly how they interact with these uh, mm -hmm. training organizations, um, and so this is something that we've we recently get this is the 2022 version or the 2023 version coming out next year. We work partner with the city of Seattle, Sound Transit, King County, and watched out to produce this. This gives us an in-depth um, look at um, you know what pre-apprenticeship programs offer, what the prerequisites are, uh, how to get in contact with them, mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's. And this is part of kind of our handshake to the community to say, hey, listen, come and join us. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. So is the partnership similar to the type of model that we see with um, the community connectors, the business connectors that we just have been talking about on the economic development side of things? Or is it more of like um, you're sharing the booklet and uh, sending the email? Like, is there an actual financial partnership between community connectors and this particular program? Our, our work is uh, mostly training programs and we're hoping to encourage nonprofit organizations in our communities to develop 
those training programs because the are we paying those nonprofit organizations to do that we will as they become contractors of the Port of Seattle and one goal in the next uh, round of contracts is to give the, the smaller organizations that do not provide training the tools so they become good trainers so we can they can then compete with the news of the world uh, or the urban league and compete for the uh, contracts at the Port of Seattle which are open solicitations That's so helpful. but currently we do not have too many or any contracts with those smaller organizations because they don't have the training capacity where we want to build that capacity with them that's 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 perfect yeah and and that's what i was getting at it's it's the that outreach and asking some of those grassroots organizations yes. to partner with us um, unless there's an actual contract in place to have that partnership then you're just passing a message along because the reality is a lot of those organizations are at capacity most of the time and you know, unless there is a real partnership, it's very hard for them to extend themselves and do that additional work. And so even that outreach and wanting them to get the message out in community requires us to fund that. And so um, I'm glad to hear that that is going to be incorporated in, into the work because that deserves dollars. Indeed. That concludes my questions. And again, thank, thank you. you so much. And I'm looking forward to supporting this, this item today. Commissioner Feldman. <laughs> so I'll, be, I'll be brief. I'll be brief. I mean, I, I think the question you were asking was more like a recruiter, and you're talking about a trainer. So you need to get the people into the training. And so that's where the community outreach is really needed. And I completely because we've been we've been at this forever, right? I mean, this is like this is an institutional problem that's across all these fields that you know, this is yeoman's work that we have to keep on pushing through, and I appreciate and will be happy to support this ongoing effort. But it's, um, you know, we, we have to obviously make better inroads into the communities and those navigators and stuff like that. I think we've shown pretty exceptional success with our grant programs, mm -hmm. right? People have to know to apply for the grants mm -hmm. and need help to apply for the grants. So we're getting there, and I think there's lessons learned across the across the institution to do that. You know, one of the things, and I've always foreshadowed this question with you before, was the, um, while, while this has been an ongoing institutional challenge, when we passed the uh, Workforce Development Initiative, we specifically then added green jobs. It was sort of like, as if this wasn't hard enough. We wanted, we wanted to make your job even more challenging. And, um, and there really isn't the same blueprint to follow. So if we sort of have, more of a challenge to kind of create a, a, a yet a new outreach program into communities that were less engaged with. Now I saw, I saw in your list of trainings that you know you specifically call out trainings for green, mm -hmm. energy efficient, whatever programs. But when I when I've asked about this before, you know we're talking about you know classic trades type positions that could have green applications, whether it be HVAC installers or plumbers, that depending on what you're plumbing or HVACing, it could be more efficient or not, but it's not unto itself a green job. Like my colleague, Mr. Calkins, would tell you, look at all those jobs in, in a windmill maintenance or construction, and like this is a, a new field that has a, probably a different pipeline to fill. And, um, obviously solar installers and there's all that and, and I just I just seem to think that you know part of the thing was you know we have a construction part of our century agenda I mean, that's sort of like one of the categories 
we added green jobs. Sorry, so that to me it's just a, it, it requires a um, somewhat of a different approach. So what, what do we have here is examples of port-related green jobs and careers may include, but it's not limited to, renewable and solar energy, stormwater management, habitat restoration and carbon banking, ecotourism and sustainable transportation, environmental compliance and remediation, environmental policy as allowed by law. So these are kind of different in kind than trades. And, and so I'm just, you know, like I said, we have a foundational need to do what you're doing. And I'm just wondering, do you have a strategy towards expanding that base? First, let me say that our work is based on, the, on two fundamental principles, equity, lens, and short-term um, opportunities for the people we're trying to support. The, the equity lens is to support people that have been excluded traditionally, particular women, people of color, immigrant refugees, to uh, encourage them to get into the trades. That's uh, the equity lens we put on all of our work. The second piece, which is really important and is part, is part answer to your question, is the short-term benefit, meaning that our training dollars help individuals in a short term, no more than two years, to get placed into a job or into an apprenticeship program. Our pre-apprenticeship program is a 12-week program. They can go immediately into an apprenticeship program. So we look for short-term gains so they are placed into a, a job or an apprenticeship that is waiting for them. Some of the green jobs, uh, broadly speaking, are still in development and they may be called jobs of the future, although some of them are already here, but they don't have enough demand for us to say we're gonna invest heavily into those jobs because we wanna push more people through with this equity lens into a jobs that are ready for them to take. So. The, the answer is two parts. One is we're working on the trades, which is the immediate availability of, of those green-related uh, jobs. And the other one is the longer-term, bigger uh, picture of the jobs of the future, and that is a separate uh, a parallel process that we will be initiating. So I don't know if so, I confused you. So that's you. what I'm, I mean, I'm asking, I, like, I appreciate the fact jobs of the future by definition need, you know, you have to get there from here. It becomes a tautology, right? We have to do something to get there. So I, I guess I just want to see um, a strategy. Yes. And, and also just one of the pieces of data that you showed, which I think is, is a um, distinctly different strategy from recruitment to retention. Mm -hmm. And it just strikes me for the bang for the buck, you already got them, right? They got through the door to hold them, to provide those services once you have them go through that door, it just seems to me if I would be looking at where would my emphasis of resources go, you know, you, we have sort of like the recruitment thing going all the time, but is there a, just is there, in terms of where are you emphasizing, I just think it's a criminal thing to lose folks once you've got them through. No, I appreciate that. I just want to just kind of go back to you know, the green job. So we want to make sure that we create the distinction, particularly in construction, the distinction between or among increased demand opportunities or occupations that have a green scope, um, enhanced skill occupations that require more green focus and um, or training, and um, emerging occupations uh, where uh, green economy activities and technology implemented. And for construction in particular, the demand in the greening of the world uh, is, is centered more on 
um, job opportunities with uh, on projects with a green scope, but don't require more formal training than already exists. And so when you think about, and then we also have to look at, um, as Luis pointed out, um, you know, setting conditions for how we identify green careers in which we can start to think about investing in, right? Which, you know, we want to make sure that the jobs require two years or, or less of training. Uh, training is locally accessible. Um, it's in high demand in the industry. Um, it's a port-related sector. And the earning uh, is 80% of the King County's medium wage set at $32.38. And, uh, and, and, and so where we land in construction and where this relates to construction is um, where we talk about HVAC and uh, electricians really kind of being the two most stable and the two uh, most um, opportunistic over the course of the next 10 years. That's not to say that we don't look at other uh, port-related sectors or we don't see things in the future. We don't run an analysis in five years and see something uh, different, but we want to make sure that we, as a workforce development agency, as entity, we want to make sure that we are uh, being um, really thinking about um, access um, and really kind of, and as the as a platform for which we would you know we, we want to really start this work and as, as especially as a new um, workforce sector you know that, that we that we um, support and, and, and Tiffany's going to do a great job with with that and we're we're finding our way finding ways to weave green uh, opportunities into all of our workforce sectors and so as not just the not just green careers but you know uh, like um, green greening of the world if you will and so that and it has some components in construction but it also has some in aviation and maritime and so we want to you know we're this is our testing of that um, and supporting that framework um, and and so in terms of um, um, recruiting and retention um, I mean that's uh, the the wraparound services that we were provided um, that we can now support that we now use uh, to support the um, the uh, retention trades uh, the retention in the trades um, is really really uh, serving to be beneficial to um, uh, folks that are staying in the trades you know after they finish up pre-apprenticeship they don't have tools or boots or especially for our high school students that are leaving the CTE programs uh, you know um, they don't have uh, much to kind of really go off of especially for some of those first-generation construction workers who you know who've never who've don't never done this work the uh, wraparound services and case management career navigation um, is really part of they see the opportunity when they come out of high school they're like oh they're making you know they they have an opportunity to make a living, but they don't. Uh, but for in order for them to continue this work, they they need the support to because it's hard work. It's you know, there's a lot of you think about a construction site where you have, you know, it's a group of strangers kind of coming together to work on a project, and uh, some of them are you know they they don't know one another, and so uh, thinking about an 18 year old coming out to the construction site and not having that mentorship, not having you know, a sense of direction of guidance. That's why we invest so much into, you know, wraparound services and retention services because they need that. They're, they're, they're lost in the sauce. And so uh, we want to make sure that they're, they're found and they're safe 
and they're protected and they're supported. So uh, to go further. So yeah, thanks, Thank Carl. Commissioner Hasegawa. where the rubber meets the road, where having that intentional effort to be able to connect historically excluded people to these sorts of opportunities helps us fulfill our mission of raising the quality of life for our community members. Mm -hmm. That's what this is. This is that intentional effort. So I just want to speak life into you and your team for bringing this to the table. You know what I want to see on here is the disaggregated context of some of this information on an ethnic on an ethnic basis so um, so I'd be interested in seeing that and then have when you come back to us in the future and sort of give us updates you've done this for us in the past um, I, I just I'm always going to want to see ethnic information on here because that tells me how that intentional effort is really playing out I'd also like to see this disaggregated on a non-binary gender basis as well. So back to collaborations with community partners, one of the things that we heard is from the LGBTQIA plus youth. They are high at risk for poverty. And they, one of the greatest indicators for their success and their wellness is that access to employment opportunities. So if we could somehow make sure that that is an intentional piece of our community collaboration to ensure that we're connecting LGBTQIA plus youth with some of these opportunities, that'd be great. And I'd really love to see that reflected in the data as we're reporting on it and, and, and looking back on it as well. Um, I love these uh, presentations because they're always so forthcoming with with the questions and you always anticipate what I'm going to ask and it's here so I really like seeing on here that um, that the graduation rate is only at about a third right and so that begs the question about retention thank you Commissioner Feldman I, I love that line of questioning um, but you know how are we capturing people the trades isn't for everybody okay mm -hmm. it's back back breaking work mm -hmm. Um, and so how are we guiding folks to other opportunities when we know that we have employment shortages in other aspects of our industries, right? So I think that that's an area for collaboration internally among different areas within the port. Um, you know, um, that's just something to keep in mind. Um, speaking of partnerships again, um, I am wondering how, if you could explain to me how we're working with our own contractors to make sure that they're living the spirit of this in their own efforts for our for our own projects. Maybe I'll take that uh, last yeah. question, Commissioner. Thank you. Very good point. On the data, we provide you an annual report early in the year, and that uh, mm -hmm. is provided in a disaggregated data basis. We'll make sure we include um, the other points you mentioned if that data is available. Uh, on, in regards to <coughs> uh, the uh, contractors, mm -hmm. we have a strong relationship with AGC, the Association of General Contractors. We work with them. In fact, we meet with them regularly on this particular issue of equity, diversity, and inclusion in the trades and how the contractors community is being part of the solution. We know racism and sexism and bias exists mm -hmm. in construction. So working directly with the association and the Port of Seattle also has 
a contract requirement on all contracts with our uh, on our projects uh, for this kind of uh, information and behavior that we expect of our contractors that are doing work for the port and our capital program that they have individuals that work with the contractors on a regular basis on this issue and we meet with them to reinforce the issue of uh, equity and respect on the job site. Carl, in particular, is part of a regional uh, group, and he can talk more about it. But our work with contractors directly is, is, is ongoing. We are also now beginning to work with the unions. Mm -hmm. The unions also need to be part of the solution to ensure that as we bring more women and people of color into the trades, that they are treated with respect and dignity and stay in the trades. Totally. Carl, you want to add something else? Yeah, sure. So our contractors um, uh, here at the port, we, uh, again, as Louis said, we have a great great working relationship with uh, AGC um, where we talk about these things on a pretty consistent uh, basis. Um, our folks work under uh, Janus, um, also meet with uh, contractors weekly to ensure that they're meeting our priority hire and apprenticeship utilization requirements uh, to ensure that we are... Um, uh, that that a couple things are happening. One, that it's a respectful worksite, um, and that we're maintaining that 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 pledge and in our contract to ensure that harassment, bullying, um, hazing is not happening on our job sites. But secondly, to make sure that we are uh, ensuring that um, um, women and people of color that are part of the priority hire program um, or folks that come from our priority hire zip codes are being uh, treated fairly in there. That just whisk away up you know come on just to meet the quota and then move the way but we want to make sure we want to mitigate that at all costs and so that comes with uh constant uh communication with those contracts to ensure that mm -hmm. uh we're meeting those goals last year in 2021 uh, we met all of our high pri priority hire goals on all of our projects and i believe uh right now um with the exception of maybe one that's just starting up um but this, this uh contract has a great record of um, um, ensuring that um, um, that respectful worksite right. culture is is, is, is maintained, um, that uh, they're they're meeting their requirement for so far this year. Okay, thank you. Um, so, you know, I just I I would hypothesize that a lot of the same issues impacting workers and worker retention are gonna be present in a disparity study, right? Um, looking at you know minority-owned businesses and feeling like they could operate. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how, if you could speak to the cultural transformation of the construction workforce and what your vision is and what we're trying to be able to achieve. I think that uh, construction workforce um, that we're trying to achieve as a younger workforce. Uh, we recognize that there's a great tsunami in the construction field, I believe, according to a 2020 study done by Seattle Jobs Initiative, um, that about 44% of construction workers are 44 years and older. And so recognizing the workforce, um, recognizing that the for workforce needs to get younger and younger quickly in order to meet the long-term demands. I mean, we have projects, uh, uh, that span years and, and sub-public agencies span decades already. I think Sound Transit's projects through 2045. Um, we uh, want to make sure that we are, you know, um, working to make a make it a younger workforce. 
Secondly, a more diverse workforce. And we recognize that diverse workforces are workforces that um, are great at decision making. Um, they have lived experiences that uh, contribute to um, um, just just growth all, all over. Um, and we recognize that um, representation does matter, you know, in these fields, um, in, in this work. And so um, a, a younger workforce, a more diverse workforce, and uh, a workforce that is also um, focused on, um, um, let me, young workforce that's, uh, that has the ability to, um, um, that, that, that is getting paid, that's being able to take care of their family mm -hmm. uh, over, over, over time. And so uh, those are really, that, that's what I envision. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, for us, um, and I also envision more um, uh, minority, I mean, women beyond businesses also being a part of this process and being a part of this um, this makeup. And so, um, you know, finding ways to um, um, be more inclusive um, uh, as, you know, when we talk about uh, women in leadership, people of color in leadership, um, um, you know, uh, but. Wimby, Wimby businesses, Wimby firms also being a contributor to um, uh, this process and, and, mm -hmm. and supporting this work is really, really important to the growth of the trades. Uh, I, I'd agree. Yeah. Um, so my last question is, who is it that actually provides that support to students as they move through the apprenticeship program? Who, who does that? So yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And so um, in recognizing um, uh, as part of this, as part of this process, it's our hope through the RFP process that we could find community-based organizations and training organizations to, uh, and schools to con consider tracking student progress after they graduate um, from um, from our CTE programs because that 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 data is not being uh, captured. When I ask, when I speak with uh, school administrators or when I speak with CTE programs, they don't. That's unfortunately that's not there, and so. This, uh, this pilot program for youth um, um, career launch uh, is an attempt to, to resolve that issue by saying, hey, let's, um, let's track the folks that we, are, that, that we are sending out the door to make sure that they are prepared, that they're successful, um, and that they're, they're growing. Um, um, because that's, it, it's a, it, um, unfortunately, if we don't, then we'll be doing this forever. Right, like when we're look, talking about providing support to small minority businesses, we talk about cultural competency, language access, all of those things. Those same rules apply for mm -hmm. workers. Correct. Right, they need, they need support. And having those community-based partnerships is exactly how we need to lean on, making sure that they can check in, troubleshoot challenges, navigate, um, and. As if they if they drip out of a crack in the pipeline that they've got we've got somewhere you know that we could reroute them to that might be a better fit but um, but that's where I really see that community-based partnership being really critical mm -hmm. so that's that's why I asked I, I lied I do have one more question really? just to clarify um, did I hear you say that CPR is a, an important retention strategy yeah, it's a, it's a. And how, if a, so, how did that come to be? Because well, we're talking about a younger cohort of workers here, so. 
Yeah, it's, it's definitely Please make it make sense. Yeah, it's just training. So it's a training requirement. It's part of what is required to enter a job site. Um, and so, um, so ensuring that um, those folks coming out to the, you know, they, in the event of an accident uh, or, you know, safety being a huge component and a priority mm -hmm. of the work that they do out, you know, making sure that they know how to save a life, you know, in the event that something uh, happens is really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that I mean, I would, I'd, I'd like to see drivers training, um, you know, uh, because that's also a huge component of, of this work, um, and um, that more to follow there. And we, um, so when we do the pre-apprenticeship funding, we give them those skills they need to get into an apprenticeship, and it includes those items that were mentioned, including some uh, uh, help with their math, et cetera, et cetera. So when they become apprentices, they feel more confident. They already, from the get-go, want to actually stay, and we provide the retention and navigation going forward so they stay even longer and become journey workers. Did you say drivers training? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, yes, I did. Here's the thing: when I speak with uh, community-based organizations, training organizations, uh, K through 12, um, one of the things that we that, that always comes up is where's drivers training? Like drivers training used to be a component of of of, of um, high school. Uh, I was part of it, and and as a workforce, um, um, as a workforce necessity for many of our jobs in the trades. Job drivers training is as a core tenant of it, um, and so just um, just as much as it, you know, being able to operate a forklift, but even just getting to work, you know, because sometimes, you know, construction sites are really kind of far from where they live, and so um, how do we access, you know, accessing those types of things? So it's just um, something that you know, as public agencies, we've 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 begun a discussion, and you know, members of the regional pre apprenticeship collaboration. Uh, we've, we're beginning the discussion about how do we uh, invest in that because right now our provisions don't, uh, work, wraparound services don't provide for that. Any other questions? All right. Uh, and as a reminder, this, it sounds like there's a, a lot of real interest in the kind of nuts and bolts of this, and I would strongly encourage uh, fellow commissioners to reach out for additional briefings to get into as much detail as they want on any of these programs. Um, that was not intended as a slide. <laughs> But it, the world is your oyster, commissioners. Um, okay, uh, my only comment is um, I think we've got a, a little bit of a free rider problem in this. We've got the, all these great public agencies contributing to this thing, and this is, uh, I'm throwing no shade on our staff who's doing amazing work on this, but I would love to see in here some of the big developer names, some of the big uh, general contractor names in here saying, and, and I know that some do, that there are some actors who are, um, making good faith efforts to mm -hmm. contribute mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we're doing this not because we're forced to we're doing it because we think it's the right thing to do and I would love to see some of our private sector partners do the same thing um, there is a fundamental discrepancy in I think the public's understanding of what it takes to train somebody to do these these professions and it's the the represented professions generally uh, not just skilled trades but you know our t our school teachers our police officers our firefighters when people think about oh you know it takes uh, however many years to become a doctor it takes about that same amount of time to become many of the you know the, the sort of um, journey level um, mm -hmm. skilled trades and others and we just 
for some reason have a fundamental disconnect where you don't think that we as a society need to invest as much in the education of those trades as we do into things that um, you know maybe come with a uh, a title like doctor so um, I think that's something that we as a public agency can can work to um, bridge that prestige gap because these are uh, professions that provide meaning great compensation are uh, durable can't be outsourced etc so thank you I um, will call for a motion on this and so moved. Uh, a second? Seconded. Okay. Um, the motion was made and seconded. Clerk Hart, can you please call the roll for the vote? Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. For the vote, beginning with Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Calkins. Uh, aye. Thank you. Four ayes, zero nays for this item. And with that, the motion passes. Commissioner Fellman. Can you talk about uh, training to drive? I asked when my son was learning to drive, I asked the, the teacher, I go, do you teach him how to, you know, back up a trailer? And he goes, no, that's not in it. But have you ever seen people that don't know how to back up a trailer? I mean, it's, uh, it, it's really like when in, in the trades and stuff like that. It's like unbelievable. I've seen people try to put a boat on a ferry. All right, we're, we're about anyway. 25 minutes behind already, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, that'll be on Commissioner Fellman's blog next month. Learning to a cool story, bro. <laughs> Thank you, Commissioner. All right, uh, Clerk Hart, can you please read the final item into the record? Yes, our last new business item today is item 10E, authorization <laughs> for the executive director to authorize staff to advertise, procure, and execute a $300,000 Port of Seattle Disparity Study Contract. Commissioners, the last disparity study the port conducted was in 2019. This authorization will enable a new study to establish new WMBE utilization benchmarks and inform new port-wide aspirational goals. Here to make the presentation is Mian Rice, Director of Diversity and Contracting. Mian. Let's see if I can use this mic here. <clears throat> Step into the mic, here we go. Good afternoon, uh, commissioners. My name is Mian Rice. I'm the Director of Diversity and Contracting Department. Uh, just uh, tickle pink about being here today. Uh, last, uh, last presentation. Uh, I am here today, next slide please. I am here to request an authorization for the Executive Director to authorize uh, staff to advertise, procure and execute a $300,000 Port of Seattle Disparity Study contract. Next slide, please. And what you have here is the agenda where I've, I'm going to briefly go through today. Um, won't take too much time, but I wanted to make sure uh, for the listening audience to kind of see where I'm where I'm going in regards to the agenda. And uh, starting uh, starting first off with the federal DBE program uh, via CFR 49 Part 26. And next slide, please. And the federal government. Uh, commissioners basically require transportation agencies to implement uh, federal uh, disadvantaged business programs uh, if they receive United States Department of Transportation funds. Um, the DB program is outlined within the Code of Federal uh, Regulation CFR 49 Part 26, which those folks who are interested in seeing the FAA documentation, they can log on to that and see the very prescriptive um, development of the DB program itself. Next slide, please. 
some of the, these are just a few of the major objectives, but basically at the end of the day, it's about leveling the playing field for our uh, federally certified and disadvantaged businesses out there that wanted to work with the Portis with uh, government agent, uh, federal government contracts, uh, contracts that actually have federal assistance on there. Uh, we also want to help remove a lot of the barriers to the participations to the disadvantaged businesses um, that are trying to compete on those federal contracts itself. And we really want to make sure that uh, the, the federal DBA program is basically to ensure that departments uh, within the DBA program is fairly narrowly tailored in accordance to the applicable laws because we're only speaking specifically about those federal uh, contracts, those um, dollars that are going to a lot of our federal project itself. Next slide, please. Now, disparities, uh, transportation agencies that receive federally assisted uh, funds within the states of the Ninth Circuit will need to conduct a disparity study every three to five years in order to implement race conscious DB requirements. Uh, on federally assisted projects. So the Ninth Circuit typically ranges from uh, Washington, California, Montana, Idaho, Hawaii, Guam, kind of that whole uh, Ninth Circuit federal arm in there. So uh, disparity studies are quantitative and quantitative research methods to determine whether there are race conscious disparities uh, in the awarding of the federal assisted contracts itself. Now the port has uh, conducted in the years past a disparity study. The last one was conducted back in 2019, which basically um, uh, sought to again figure out if there are disparities within our construction and construction related activities. And the study periods were between January 2012 and through 2016. And that was the 2019 disparity study, which that was the study period itself in the capsulation of it. So moving on to the next slide, please. Thank you. So let's talk about a little about the results. Basically, in 2019, uh, disparity study indicated all ethnic uh, groups have experienced contracting disparities um, within either construction and or construction related professional services categories. Now, the, the second one here is a, is a uh, I guess a, a, a chart of showing a uh, disparity ratio of 100% is considered parity amongst all folks out there. Anything 80% uh, below signifies significant disparity. And as you see within the chart, within the different ethnicities, with the exception of right now with African American, however, there is an anomaly in regards to one African American firm really got a good majority of the, the uh, um, documentation or should say a lot of the work uh, within that study period of time. So that skewed some of the African American or the black category. Uh, but regardless of that, the consultant and a lot of the other folks said it is across the board, take them out disparity across the board for all um, uh, all businesses that actually have been interviewed within the groups of um, all the contracts that we do. So next slide, please. Now, new uh, disparity study, some of the key benefits. One is we are keeping in compliance with the United States Department of Transportation's FAA rules and regulations uh, of running a, their DB program. 
the new study results uh, will be post 2016 diversity and contracting policy directive uh, informing WIMBY contracting efforts. Um, and then with the, this disparity study, we should be able to help inform the ports of Seattle with your help. We can then figure out um, what the new goals will be for 2024 um, for our next five year benchmarks. Next slide, please. On the horizon, wanted to talk just to kind of give you guys a little something on the horizon, but we're working on in diversity and contracting department. We have, uh, uh, we have a Wimby analysis study, kind of a barrier study, basically teasing out some of the other areas outside of contracting that we might see as barriers to uh, coming in and working with the Port of Seattle. Uh, second one is we have an annual presentation back to you. Uh, come quarter, first quarter of 2023, saying how do we do from a WIMBY perspective uh, across the board um, for, 20, for 2022 results, so to speak. And then we, and then if approved today, we have the disparity study itself. That's what I'm coming here for to, to get authorization for. We're hoping to have this um, completed by Q1 of 2024. So uh, with that, I want to say uh, thank you, and next slide, please. There, there's the thank you, and uh, we'll go from there. All right, commissioners, any questions or comments? Commissioner Hasegawa, I'll let you go first this time. Thank you for the presentation. So am I hearing you say that the timeline for the dis uh, renewed disparity study, um, the study will be completed in time for a 2023 Q1 presentation that will also allow us time for a four-year comparison? The, the, if, the, if approved for disparity studies, uh, conduct the disparity study, um, they usually disparity studies take about uh, 10 to 12 months, a year. Okay. So in 2024, we'll have, by first quarter of 2024, we hopefully will have some type of indicator of how we've been doing. Got it. Um, and then that will also, you know, when we're all talking about the disparity study it's um, about what our new goals are going to be we might be able to utilize this documentation to study to help inform us about what our new goals can possibly be and um, as part of the scope of the study will it include structured interviews with um, business owners or employees yes that's part of the it's a, it's a qualitative and quantitative wonderful approach. yeah so that's typically what disparity studies uh, hand, uh, go through, so. Um, okay, that's good. So we're not just looking at hard numbers. No. We're also looking at, um, you know, social implications yep. and um, or workforce dynamic and things like that. Correct. And is that also been within the scope of the study that took place four years ago? Yes, we've actually had two studies to keeping in. Uh, we had one that was conducted in 2014, mm. and then we had another one in 2019, and both of them have the, that qualitative and quantitative efforts that it'll be in this scope for 2020 for this future disparity study to answer so, your question. So yes. So we'll also be able to compare differences between um, those categories as well. In, yes. in the renewed study. Awesome. Okay, yeah. very good. Well, Thank that'll you. be part of the scope. We'll say, hey, we want to make sure that given our all of our efforts um, um, since the 2016 uh, diversity and contracting policy directive, 
we've, you know, because of you and your predecessors uh, and a lot of the port staff that we have um, in the ELT, we have um, saying we want to make sure we do some affirmative efforts as relates to women minority participation on our contracts. So hopefully this disparity study will also show some improvements, especially in some of the ethnic categories that you see in front of you. Well, I forgot what page it is right now, um, of participation on a lot of our contracts because of affirmative efforts. Director Rice, I'm wondering why do we need a disparity study to set more aggressive um, diversity and contracting goals? Oh, good question. Well, it's just helping us inform us of what we want to do from a just a general Port of Seattle effort, but essentially for the um, the uh, uh, for this disparity study, what the big thing is really about making sure that we stay in compliance with the federal government and the DB program. That part. Thank you. Yep. Commissioner Hasegawa or Commissioner Mohammed. I'm also tired. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Rice, thank you for your presentation sure. and the work that you do. Um, I uh, The only question I have is these studies are sometimes so expensive, and this is like a study that's similar to a study that already happened. Mm -hmm. Like, is this how much the cost of these studies are across the board? And like... Good question. So in years past, disparity studies in different, different jurisdictions can cost up to a million plus dollars. Uh, and uh, the dollar amounts have con gone down over time because so many different jurisdictions are, are uh, who receive uh, U.S. Department of Transportation's funds, Sound Transit, Washington Department of Transportation, and FAA, you know, uh, they all have to do disparity studies as well. So uh, there are some areas where they can actually leverage some of the, the data to, to keep the price down a little lower than what has been. So yes, it's been, it's very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I, I heard you say a little bit that this, this study will inform some of our, our work that is happening across the, the board, is that correct? It can, it, it can. can inform some of it. But you know, you, you, uh, come 2023 when we do have this conversation about what is our future of our port goals and what we want to do, uh, that's something in which uh, we're going to have to have a conversation about for our future uh, Wimby attainments and what we're trying to, to achieve. So, um, yeah. That's helpful. That concludes my questions. Thank you again for your presentation and your work. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Commissioner. Commissioner Feldman. Thank you, man. Once again, really appreciate this. I remember, though, back in the Christine Gregoire, oh, was, yeah. not Christine, but Courtney Gregoire, um, was, uh, <laughs> there's always a question about numbers versus percents. Mm -hmm. And uh, you present this in percents. And so, I mean, we're, there's also the sample size, right? How many people actually these percentage represent would be also a valuable number just to understand the magnitude of these impacts. But what I'm really asking about, so in the same, today we had also on item 8C was we were just advanced uh, another half million dollars to port jobs for oh, like a $10 mm -hmm. million dollar contract. Right. Talk about expense, but at least this is not a study. Um, but I'm just saying it says it has like a 9% goal for women and minority-owned business enterprise utilization for that. So um, now I'm not sure if that's for the company to do the port jobs administration, but independent of that, if we're funding this training for businesses at the airport, I mean, there's an accounting opportunity here 
to see like, you know, how's our money being spent? Are we achieving the goal? So it's not like just producing employees, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I know that Port Jobs is a fantastic source for diverse employees, but um, are we tracking those, are we making them track those data for $10 million contracts? Well, I, I forgive me, Commissioner. I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. So, the nine percent, I'm assuming, because we're talking more on a workforce side, so they're talking about apprenticeship and the breaking down of the one minority and what the ethnicities are from that perspective. Here, we're talking more. We track on the construction, you know, uh, construction consulting and goods and services category. So we track all the different categories to to. A uh, certain percentage. So there's two separate efforts. One is the actual business, and one is the other, the workforce within that, doing the work. So especially on the construction side of the coin. I so, got it. And, and you're focused on the construction because of FAA right. compliance and stuff. I'm I'm just seeing like in the broader context, we have this whole thing about workforce today, mm-hmm. and so we are actually paying. So it really is a disconnect here, but we're paying an organization specifically to place people mm. in airport, mostly ADR, right, work, mm-hmm. and so like. Since we are the ones that are creating this this entity, it seems to me that we should make sure that we have those data that the success of their WIMBY participation in those jobs. I mean, those businesses that are receiving these employees, somebody should be accounting to us, right? Sure. So we, we had the same question about how many people go from pre-apprenticeship and end up in work. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to track those data to our success. So I just lay that out there. No, it's, it's something it. we have more control over sure. than anything else, right? And right. so it's a lot of money. Let's see how well we're doing. No, absolutely, and I appreciate it. But, yeah, we, with the partnership with a lot of our port staff, PMs, CPO, and so forth, we do a lot of tracking of that, including our department. So we do the best we can. And we all also, or a lot of our tracking also falls into our annual report that we give to you on an annual basis as well. So that could be a possible area that we can add into it as well. So. Uh, just a couple of things. Um, first is, uh, I remember the first time I um, received a briefing on our diversity or our disparity study, and the real recognition that um, as we dug down into that one, how much of it res- is a result of just simply being unable to find trained workers mm-hmm. within particular groups. Categories. Mm-hmm. That, that sort of, what that taught me was you got to start really early, really thinking about what we're doing uh, to bring young people into these professions in the first place. So I think that's important. The other is um, I think part of this disparity study is allowing us to demonstrate just you know what the impetus is for us to invest in undoing some of this disparity. If we don't have the data, we can't show people we've got a problem. And so I think that's a really critical part of it. And in fact, I think that gives us some legal basis for uh, putting um, funds into programs that state law may not otherwise allow, um, but where we get some federal legal coverage for that. Which leads to my second point, and and this is, I think, some homework for Pete and his team. Uh, I know that um, there's an affirmative action case at the Supreme Court right now related to college admissions, and it does not sound good uh, based on the questioning in oral arguments. And so I guess I'd like, depending on the outcome of that case, to, to, for the commission to be briefed uh, once that's announced on whether that has impacts on our ability to do stuff. Because right now we are relying on some, some federal laws to, to supersede state laws in terms of what we can do uh, related to uh, overcoming some of these disparities. So I'll just leave that with you, Pete. And <laughs> um, 
I think with that, uh, we will turn to, I'll, I'll ask for a motion and a second. So moved. Second. All right, the motion was made and seconded. Clerk Hart, can you please call the roll for the vote? Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Beginning with Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Four ayes, zero nays for this item. And with that, the motion passes. And I forgot to say thank you, Mia, for no, thank your you, presentation. Excellent presentation. You. Thank you. Okay. Um, we have no presentations and staff reports before us today. Um, and so that concludes our business meeting agenda for the day. Are there any closing comments at this time or motions relating to committee referrals from commissioners? Yes, Commissioner Feldman. Well, I just want to uh, express um, my enthusiasm for being able to go to Kobe on the end of this week with my colleague, Commissioner Hasegawa, um, to learn about their hydrogen operations. But also it, it harkens back to the fact that um, over 25 years ago, the Kobe had this earthquake. And while I was just an outside port agitator at the time, <laughs> I felt um, compelled to come to Pier 69 and we had the big reception and to make donations to the recovery of the Port of Kobe. And, um, and then I had the pleasure of meeting some of the commissioners at, uh, at the IAPH meeting just recently at, um, in Vancouver. And, and that now that to be able to go back, you know, in my commission status to meet them again in Kobe, there's like a, mm -hmm. a full circle thing, but also just to think about how far ports have come since this, construct, this destruction of their port back over 25 years ago. And now we're going to learn about their green tech and how much more advanced they are right as of us to learn from. So anyway, I just wanted to share that we'll be coming back and reporting out about things that we've learned and we want to be informed by to do better ourselves. Any other commissioner comments or uh, referrals to committee? Commissioner Mahan. Thank you. Um, I just want to share that on November 1st, we had a listening session in South King County and Commissioner um, Hasegawa and I uh, attended that listening session. Um, we heard a lot from community members. They were very appreciative of, of the session. And um, we heard about economic development issues, sound, installation issues, noise. It was South King County. Um, and there was a, a, a good amount of folks who did show up. And I just want to commend Commissioner Hasegawa's leadership, who um, we partnered together on holding that listening session, but she really pushed it forward. And so I just well, want to say thank you works. so much. Uh, maybe you have a cancellation list. You're Sorry. coming in hot, Sandy, I think, or Stephanie. <laughs> um, but we didn't hear anything. You're good. <laughs> yeah, so I, I just wanted to share that um, with the rest of you. Okay. Uh, my only, I was going to uh, also uh, just recognize that um, this month we're going to have commissioners and other executive leadership flung all across the globe. Right now we've got Commissioner Cho and Executive Director Metric and Sharm El Sheikh for uh, COP27. Uh, of course, Fred mentioned the trip to Kobe. Uh, Commissioner Mohammed will be traveling as well to Sharm El Sheikh later this week. Um, and I am going to go to the most exotic of locales. I'm going to uh, Oakland, California for a meeting of uh, the, the first technical advisory committee meeting of a study looking at um, Pacific Coast offshore floating wind. So uh, all of this work is really in the service of business development for the Port of Seattle 
for advancement of our environmental initiatives, and I think it really speaks to what, um, you know, after two years of being sort of pent up, what we really should be doing as a commission, which is going out and working on the generational uh, decisions and impacts uh, for this institution. So I'm really pleased that we get to be doing this. Um, and with that, um, Mr. Thomas, do you have any further closing remarks? For no, that? none. Thank you, Commissioner. All right. Thank you. Great job standing in today for Executive Director Metric. Uh, hearing no further comments and having no further business, if there is no objection, we are adjourned at 3.10 p.m.